The Carl Nelson Show. You're rocking with the most awesomest. All right, let's go. And good morning, family, and thanks for starting your day with us again. Later, we will reminisce on the 59th anniversary of Malcolm X's assassination. Journalist A. Peter Bailey, who was at the Audubon uh, Ballroom, and we want the last person to speak with Brother Malcolm, will lead the discussion. Before we hear from Brother Peter, though, Black Women for Positive Changes, Dr. Stephanie Myers will update us on the group's new nonviolence techniques. Before Dr. Myers, Pan-African educator, Dr. Chiku Akua will check in. But to get us started, Dr. Akmul Mualkil is here. Good morning, Professor. Good morning. How are you, sir? And thank you for having me on. I'm excellent. How are you doing? Listen, I'm as good as God allow me to be at the moment. All right. I, I love that. that. That's right. We, need, we all need to recognize that. But let me let me ask you this, because you know what's been going on, and you've, you've seen it, that people are trying to lose weight and they're trying to take that, that jab to lose weight. Can you help those folks out who, uh, you know, is, is there another way that you can lose weight without without doing using it chemically? Sure. I mean, when we start talking about, <clears throat> when we start talking about weight, we're actually talking about malnutrition. And we're talking about malnutrition from a standpoint of, not the children that we see that are underweight, but, but the people that we see that are very much overweight. And that's because of the fact that their body is not receiving nutrients from the foods that they're eating. So because of that, now what's happening is, is that now a tissue in the body, which is called adipose, is, is actually um, tissue that is, is starting to grow. And as that tissue grows and spreads, the body then begins to uh, um, take on more weight. So when we start looking at it and to answer your question, yes, there are other ways to, to, to reduce and eliminate weight. It's basically about consistency and the foods that you eat. All right. You teach a class, and it's, titled, it's not weight. It's waste, healthy, lifestyle weight. A lot, uh, can you explain that, that class that you, that you have, folks who want to lose weight? So, so, so the so the class I have is is a class that that gets into using natural methods of having an understanding of one what foods are because as humans we don't understand what food is we just eat it you know we, and 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 a lot of us are addicted to things like sweets and salt and that kind of thing and that's because of the fact of that. The body is not taking in the nutrients that it needs. So what it's not waste, it's not weight, it's waste is it, it gets into the teaching a person about healthy lifestyles. For instance, we'll talk about foods. We'll talk about the combination of foods. We'll talk about eating foods in season. Um, the first class, for instance, breaks down the digestive tract so that, so that a lay person can understand what happens when you put something in your mouth? You know, we we look at the physicality of the um, digestion, and digestion actually begins in your mind. The physicality of it happens in your body when you start chewing. And, you know, we're a gulping society, so we talk about that. 
Um, just think about it this way. If I had a lemon in my hand um, and I started squeezing the lemon and you saw and, and the, the juices from the lemon um, come out on my hand, what will happen is, is that your mouth will start to salivate. So we have to understand that's you go buy one of them greasy spoons and you smell that grease, and that's basically what people are, uh, 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 are smelling. What will happen is, is that that olfactory nerve kicks in, and they say, well, let me go get something to eat. Let me eat some of that. So, so our program teaches people that that's a falsehood as to how, how to eat. The other part of that is when we talk about foods, you know, anybody that is over the age of 50, basically, um, 70, 80, growing up, we ate foods in season. We didn't eat and I'm in my 70s, I did not eat foods that were grown in other places. We eat mostly foods that were grown in season and grown closely in our area. And that's what kind of kept us healthy. Um, our ancestors who were enslaved, the, the brutality of slavery was their biggest attack on them. They ate foods in seasons, and nutritionally, they were healthy. Today, we don't get nutrients. We get plastic. We we get we get foods that that are adulterated, um, processed foods. So we talk about in the class. We talk about why not to eat processed foods, and then we talk about food supplements. Supplementation is very important. For instance, um, if, if, if if the people listening to this call, they this afternoon, this morning, they should go out and get them some digestive enzymes because that's one of the things that. One of the first things I talk about is digestive enzymes and probiotics because the digestive enzymes, what that does is digestive enzymes begin to break down your food in its places in the body where it's supposed to break down. Starch in the mouth, uh, proteins in the stomach, small intestine has to do with fats or lipids, as they're called, and sugar. So all of that's broken down so that the body's bowels so that, so that the body can extract nutrients from the foods that you're eating and uh, um, get rid of the waste byproducts in a timely manner. What we see in people who are overweight or obese, what we see there is we see the fact is that their body is not eliminating the waste. So the, so the foods that they're eating are too con- concentrated and they're not getting nutrients from it. So All right, let's getting... back up a bit. Let's back up a bit, uh, Dr. A. When the, the food, you talked about chewing, and we've all, you know, as children, we've been taught you got to chew your food 22 times. And, and, and I think about every time I'm eating, am I chewing it 22 times? Why, why is it Why is it you should chew your food a lot? Because, you know, some folks, it's, the food is so good and you're so hungry, you, you, know, you just cut and swallow. So let's start there before we get down the, 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 the digestive track. Tell us about the so, chewing. So, so, and actually it's 32 times, and it should be, it should actually be um, a bolus of juice that goes down, okay, so that, so that when, when it hits that hydrochloric acid in your stomach, it doesn't splash. And a lot of people wind up having um, acid reflux because of the fact that, that, that the, the foods that they're eating is causing that. The other part of that is is that when you actually chew that food, you're putting enzymes into that food so that when they do go down into the digestive tract, the digestive tract can recognize them. You know, 
I mean, just think about the fact that your car, if you got a Mercedes-Benz or Rolls-Royce and they tell you to put regular gas in it, uh, high-test gas in it, you put that in there. You don't put regular. And so the same thing for the body. The, 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 in terms of that nutrient piece of chewing, let's look at that as your starter. You know, because if your battery is dead and you, you try to cut that car on, you ain't getting nothing. But once that battery is alive, it starts the car. Well, well, your teeth in chewing food, that's why it's, it's really important, one, that you have as many of your teeth as possible. And two, allow that to break down the food into smaller molecules so that the body can accept it. Because when we gulp that food, the, the molecules are, um, are not, a, the, 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 the digestive juices are not able to really digest that food. So chewing is very important. Wow. Thank you for breaking that down. So so after we've chewed, how many times again you said we should chew our food before swallowing? 32, 32 times before you 32. swallow it. 32. That's, a lot, that's, that's yeah. a lot of chewing. <laughs> you know? But, yeah. Wow. But we see that in animals, too, when they eat. You know, they, they keep chewing and chewing and chewing, and people say they're chewing their car. They're chewing. So I guess that's what we have to do, keep chewing until it's, it's almost liquefied, is that what you're saying? That's, that's, that's exactly what I'm saying. And, and the other, other part of that, Carl, is, is the fact that if we watch lower animals, they only eat foods during each season. They can't go to the grocery store and get something different. You know, whatever's in their environment is what, we, is what they eat. And we need to, we need to understand that we should be eating foods that are at least 100 miles radius of where we live and not beyond that because of the fact that not only is it about the food, but it's about the energy of the food. Well, let me interrupt and, and ask you this, though, that, since you mentioned that, 11 after the time of the hour, many of us listening right now live in urban areas. You know, there are not so, too many farms around with, with animals on. So how do, how do we compensate for that? So you compensate for that by... By um, especially if you don't live in a food desert, okay, you comp you compensate for that for seeing what foods are close that are organic before you go before you go getting other foods and and you know you should eat as much food much clean food as possible. It 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 doesn't all have to be organic. And if it's organic, it should be close to you. Because here we are in Washington, D.C., if we get something from California, what has to happen is before they put that organic food on the truck, what has to happen is, is that they have to pick it immature so that when it gets here to Washington, D.C., it'll have a, a shelf life. So we need, to, we need to look at eating foods clean, and especially if we don't live in food deserts. People who live in food deserts, what, what has to happen with them is, is that when they get that food, the first thing they have to do is chew it well. Second, take those digestive enzymes and then probiotics. And then, and then third, be able to eat the food in its um, proper combinations because the body has an understanding of how to digest stuff. Things that, for instance, when you go to a restaurant, the first two things they give you is bread and water. That's to fill you up. The cold water shuts your digestive tract down. 
So now your digestive tract isn't functioning, so that's why when you when you sit there and eat a little bit, you get full. But the body is not getting in the nutrients and the calories that it needs in order for it to, to function. So what happens now is is that now your body is in a space where um where now you're gonna your, your adipose tissues are gonna pick up that pick up that um uh, uh, um fatty tissue, and 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 your bowels are not gonna move, and your bowels. No, you, you... I think we may have lost uh, Doctor Akmul, but we're coming up on a break anyway. It's 13 minutes after the top of that. We'll get him back so you can speak to him. Family, you got a question about digestion? You want to lose weight? This is Doctor. You need to talk to Doctor Akmul Walkiel. We'll take your phone calls in four minutes, though. We'll be back right here in Baltimore on 1010 WOLB. If you're in the DMV, run FM 95.9 and AM 1450. WOL, where information is power. And good morning once again, family. 20 minutes after the top of the hour, I guess Dr. Akmul Mawakil, he's given us a new way how to lose weight. He says you don't have to take that jab, you know, the chemicals, but it all starts with what you eat, when you put that food in your mouth and what kind of food you put in your mouth. So, uh, Dr. Akmul, I don't know where we dropped out, but you can pick it up and, and continue your, 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 your thoughts. And Mark in Baltimore mm-hmm. has a question for you. Well, when, you know, when we, when we start looking at when we start looking at weight, you know, it's not really weight, it's it's waste because of the fact that what we're eating is not going into the body, nourishing the body, and the waste byproducts of that um, leave the body in a timely manner. You know, what what people don't realize is is that your bowel movement is not supposed to smell. You're not supposed to put a, a sign on the door and say, you know, don't use for 30 days under construction. You know, you're not supposed to do that. When you when you go in and drop that load, it should be plop, plop, fizz, fizz. What a wonderful feeling this is. And when you roll out, the person that comes behind you shouldn't be shouldn't be um, spraying uh, um, spraying there to sweeten up the, the, the smell of the bathroom. But when that happens, that means that it's been in your system too long. When you see that, that a person and their, and their abdomen is protruding, um, this is women and men, and, and women specifically if they're not pregnant, when you see that abdomen uh, um, protruding, that abdomen is telling you that your body is storing waste because that's your small intestines. And if you, and if you was to take someone's small intestines out, that would stretch two stories, a two-story high building. And so, and so when you've got all of that waste in there, that's that's called malnutrition. Matter of fact, the World Health Organization calls that malnutrition. And so and so in doing that, we're we're not receiving the nutrients from the foods that we're that we're eating. All right, as I mentioned, we've got some folks who want to talk to you. Twenty two after the top there. Mark's in Baltimore is online too. Mark, good morning. You're on with Dr. Akmil. Uh, yes, sir. Good morning, gentlemen. Um, here in Baltimore, we may have a lot of food deserts in certain parts, but I notice in some parts of Baltimore we have community gardens. So my question is, how does one get started in putting together a community garden? So it would do two two functions: hopefully serve nutritious uh, food that's being grown, and also give an education process to all ages, particularly young people, the importance of eating right, how much, and what to expect. And uh, and do you have any resources on community gardening? 
thank you. So, so the, the the thing with the community garden is a couple. One of them, one of them is um, look around the neighborhood, find where there's an empty lot, find out who owns the lot, go to um, the city of Baltimore, and find out what resources they have for community gardens because. In several different uh, uh, states, they are now starting to put together community gardens because of the fact that, that there are so many food deserts, um, especially in the African-American community. Um, the other thing is, is that, you know, if you live, you know, we used to live in, in, in communities. If you live in a community, um, start, you know, start talking to the people within the, within the community to um to put to put a garden together and then you know again um go to the local government and find out you know what kind of programs they have because they have programs in in place congress gives them money for 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 different things of that nature so that's building the urban urban city and so um that's what i would suggest to you uh i don't know too much about um, where in Baltimore to to do that, but I would suggest that you would go on Maryland's um, website and and or even Google it. You know, Doctor Google tell you everything. Um, Google it and find out where where they are or, or where you can find funds to do that. But I would say start a community group that 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 is interested in gardening because we need to do that especially with the bad quality of food that we have. I live in a very affluent neighborhood, but the food in, in the supermarket that's supposed to be an elite supermarket is, is, is not good. You know, I go to the same market over in West, uh, over, over on Wisconsin Avenue in, um, in Washington, DC, and their food is sparkling. I come back to my neighborhood and, and the people in my neighborhood pay good money for um for their food and um and their food is dead so so we 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 have we have those kind of crises but yes we need to begin to to do more urban gardening and we need to get our children involved in that because of the fact that they say that it'll be one billion people this is world health organization said by 2030 okay that's what uh, um, six years from now there'll be one billion people worldwide who are obese or, 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 or overweight, and so we're talking we're talking basically about our children. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, we have there, there's one in one one in one in three people adults are overweight, and our children well, are yeah, let me jump in here before we go down that road, because uh, I want to pick up on something that Mark said and something that you said, too, about the food, that we, the, the deserts, food deserts and the fact that we should be farming our own food. But isn't it true that the, 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 the nutrition, because you mentioned what uh, we did when we were growing up, uh, uh, you know, where we lived and we ate food that was in season. But isn't the, the, the nutrients uh, have been depleted in the soil? So does that depreciate the, the quality of food that we're eating that comes from the soil if, if they don't have the same nutrients that we had when we were growing up? Yes, and, and you're absolutely right, Carl. The, the piece of that is that's why supplementation is necessary because 
when you start to take supplementation, what happens? First off, I talked earlier about en- <clears throat> excuse me, enzymes. And so enzymes break down the food. So the first thing is, is that that'll go down, that'll the food, just take the enzyme, take the food, the food will start to break down in its proper places. Then when you start to take things like micronutrients, which are minerals and vitamins, okay, what happens is, is that that boosts whatever you didn't get from the food. But the, but the major piece of that is, is, is the fact is that you're chewing that food. And, and the soil, listen, we're killing the earth. Look at global warming. We are killing the earth. So the earth is doing the same to us. So, so when we start talking about soil, most of the soil that we, that we, we, we use um, in most places is deficient. It's deficient in some kind of mineral or vitamin. And so that's why when they do organic, you rotate, you rotate the soil so that, so that the same uh, um, um, vegetables and, and fruits that are coming out of the ground don't deplete that soil. So you put something else in there so you get some other kinds of nutrients. All right. 28 off the top there, doctor. Let me ask you this, though. For the folks who are still eating meat, what do you have for them? You know, you mentioned they should chew their, their food uh, much longer, but digestively, how long does it stay in their digestive system? So that meat can stay in your digestive system three, four days, especially if it's not chewed well, you know. Um, and, 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 and don't get me wrong. You know, everybody is not supposed to be a vegan or vegetarian. You have some people who, who, who have to eat meat because of their blood type. People should understand what your blood type is and what foods you should eat for your blood type because that's the fuel that drives your body. So, and hold so that thought we, right there. That's important what you just mentioned, though. But how do we know what food we should be eating that pertains to our particular blood type? You can, there's a book that, that's called Eating for Your Blood Type. Matter of fact, you can Google it, and it'll give you information about what you should be eating for your blood type. And, and the interesting thing about that is, is that I have old positive blood. So whenever I eat things like legumes, like uh, uh, um, um, lentils, I always take digestive enzymes because the legumes are not, conducive for my blood type. So that'll give me bloating. I can have gas from it. And so I had to really work to find that out as I dealt with that. So so eating for your blood type is is one of the books uh, uh, that people can that people can purchase, but also they can go online and get the whole list of, 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 of things of that nature. And what I tell people is is that most medical doctors are not going to give you your blood type. But go volunteer some blood at the um, at the Red Cross, and what will happen is is that they have to understand what your blood type is because they're giving that blood to somebody else, so that so that you now begin to understand what your blood type is, so that you can eat foods that's going to help that. Because because you know we have to do this. If people don't take anything else away from what I'm saying today, this is the best, this is the thing they should take away. You're a chemist, and your body is a chemistry factory. And everything you put into it, onto it, and think about has to do with the, with the exchange of the transformation of chemistry within your body. And if the chemistry is not right, then the body's going to try to figure out what to do with it. 
And if the body can't do anything with it, it's going to store it. And as it stores it, it's going to continue to, to cause havoc within your body. So now you have, now you not only have, 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 um, uh, um, overweight or obesity. Now, now here comes here comes diabetes. Here comes uh, uh, um, hypertension. Okay, arthritis. You know, I mean, because of the fact that the body's not getting nutrients. And 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 you should ask yourself this: Why do you eat food? What is the purpose of you eating food? In our program, we get into that so that people have the understanding of why you're eating this food. So if you if you eating cake, why are you eating the cake? Is it because of the fact that you're craving the cake, or is it because of the fact that that mm, I just want something sweet for the moment? So we should understand why we eat food. That is interesting. So why do we eat food? We we should be eating food for nourishment. That's why we should eat food. Here we have a a gorilla, big gorilla. What is he eating? Or what is she eating? They're eating they're eating twigs. They're eating leaves. They're eating branches. But they're healthy. When's the last time you heard a gorilla had cancer? Or a giraffe have arthritis? So why is it that humans have that? Humans have that because of the fact that we don't eat we, we don't know how to eat. That's our biggest problem. We don't know how to eat. And so because we don't know how to eat, now we have all of these disharmonies we call diseases. We don't you know, have to have cancer. Yeah, hold that thought right there, Doc. We got to take a short break. When we come back, though, you know, Dr. Sabia has taught us that we should eat what he calls electrical food, food that uh, reproduces, food that has seeds like grapes and watermelons and stuff like right. that. I want you to expound on that, if your thoughts on that, if you're in, in sync with what Dr. Sabia has been teaching us. Family, you want to join this conversation with Dr. Akmal Mwakil, reach out to us at 800 450 7876, and we'll take your phone calls in four minutes right here in Baltimore on 1010 WOLB and also in the DMV on FM 95.9 at AM 1450. WOL, where information is power. And good morning once again, family. 22 minutes away from the top of the hour, Dr. Atmul Mawakil. He's got, uh, he's got a program for, to help you lose weight, and it's only four weeks, and so we're breaking down how you do lose weight without taking that jab. You know, a lot of people are taking that jab and, and losing weight, and they're all, you know, they're all aglow with it, but they don't know the side effects. Well, you can, there's a different way to lose weight, and Dr. Atmul is sharing that with us. Before we go back to you, let me just remind you, coming up uh, later this morning, we're going to hear from A. Peter Bailey, because this is the 59th. 59, 59 years ago, Malcolm X was assassinated at the Audubon Ballroom in Manhattan. And Peter was there. He's one of the last persons to actually speak to Brother Malcolm. So he's going to take us back on that journey. Before we speak with Peter, though, Black Women for Positive Changes, Dr. Stephanie Myers will update us on the group's new nonviolence techniques. And also before we get to Dr. Myers, Pan-African educator Dr. Chiku Akua will also check in. And also tomorrow, uh, Brother Ishmael Muhammad, one of Elijah Muhammad's sons, will be here to preview this weekend's Savior's Day event. This is going to take place in Detroit. And also chemitologist and griot. 
Brother Ashwa Kwesi, the master teacher, along with Mayra Kwesi, going to join us as well. So if you are in Baltimore, make sure your radio's locked in tight on 1010 WOLB. If you're in the DMV, we're on FM 95.9 and AM 1450 WOL. So again, before we left for the break, Dr. Atmukil, my question, Dr. Sabi is always recommending that we eat, we should not eat foods that don't have seeds. He calls them electric food. Your thoughts on that? And I got a couple of tweet questions for you as well. Well, Yes, you know, I mean, you know, Kyle, just think about this, you and your audience. It, when we grew up in the 50s and the 60s, you know, a grape had seeds in it. A watermelon had seeds in it. Now we're eating, we're seeing foods that don't have seeds in it. So that means that those foods are being manufactured um, as hybrids. And, and Dr. Sabi talked about the fact of hybrids. Um, we, came, we came from a... Uh-oh. I hope we haven't dropped him again. 20 minutes away from the topic. I can't see if you can get him back because he's going on an important road here. And the folks need to know about uh, chewing your food and also how to lose weight. And I got two tweet questions for him. I want to tweet, and I'm just read it while we get him back. A tweeter says, so when I'm craving liver or certain food, my body's telling me, for example, that I need vitamin C or B. I'm going to throw in here for the, the beer drinkers. When they're craving a beer, what does that mean? So I'm going to ask Dr. Akmul that. And also uh, got a twist, a qu- another tweet question about what's recommended for men to, to ward off prostate cancer. So those are two of the two questions we have. Uh, do we have Dr. Akmul back yet with us? Because we want to find... It, okay, well, hopefully we'll, he'll, he'll pick up the phone. and You know, sometimes you're talking, when, when the phone drops and you're talking, you don't realize that you, you've dropped the call. But he's got a, a four-week system here, family, that uh, helps you to lose weight. He breaks it all the way down, you know, it, how to lose weight. So, uh, Dr. Akmil, I'm going to let you finish your thought. Go ahead. Okay. So, so you know, we um, we have to look at the fact that you know Dr. Sabi was right when he talked about when he talked about foods with seeds. You know, we grew up eating foods that had seeds in it, and so and so now you know we're eating foods that don't have seeds in them. So mo- a lot of the food that we're eating is manufactured in such a way where it doesn't have any any nu- nutritional value to it. And so um, we need to eat live foods because of the fact that, that those foods, for instance, you know, green vegetables, we need to eat green vegetables. We need to eat foods that are in season. Um, and we need to eat foods that have a basis where it's going to give us nutrients. So, you know, and, and Dr. Sabi was always talking about the fact that, that we have too much mucus. And he was right because of the fact that we're eating foods that we shouldn't be eating that have no, no nutritional value. And we're eating them in the wrong time. A lot of people have gluten intolerance. And that gluten intolerance is because of the fact that you're eating wheat, for instance, when that wheat's growing, opposed to when it's harvested. And so as we eat foods in that manner, what happens is, is that they don't give us the electricity that they need. The colors of those foods, for instance... Uh, um, those colors like reds and oranges, those are those are foods that have that have antioxidants in them. Those are cancer-fighting foods. You know, when we start looking at at foods that are, um, for instance, fruits. Fruits are for cleansing the body, so that so that the body is cleansing. When we eat when we eat things like starch, we should eat your starch. The the basis of your starch should be in spring. And in summer, and not in winter, and not in fall, 
because of the fact that they become gelatinous. So now they're not giving you they're not giving you the electricity that you need. What they're giving you is the waste byproducts that sits in your system. So that now you wind up saying, "Well, I'm overweight or, or I'm getting fat." All right. Before I do the tweets for you, uh, online too, brother Agree has just joined us from Miami. He's got a question for you. Good morning, brother Agree. Good morning, Good morning. brother Carl and and doctor. My question, I have two questions. My first question is eaten by blood type. Isn't that based on a theory? And my second question is um, colonic irrigation as a means to to removing the waste from our body. Uh, What is your take on that? So in terms of blood type, you know, yeah, you know, I mean, all of it's a theory, okay? But the factor of it is, is that when you take that theory and you put that theory to work, does that theory work for you? And and it's been proven that it does. Western medicine has always poo-pooed things that has to do with alternative medicine because you're talking about big pharma. So if I can get your if I can get your weight down and you're not taking pharmaceuticals that's that 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 cost you a thousand dollars a month, they don't like that. So they're gonna say, Well, no, that don't work. Okay. When you okay. when 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 you talk about the factor of of your blood, you have to be real specific about the chemistry of your blood and how that chemistry works for you. Okay. Because of the fact that so so you know, you said theory, so so put it in this content. Why in the world, if it was just a theory and it didn't work, why in the world would the Red Cross single out blood types as they as they group their blood to give to other people if there was not some value to that you know there were certain antigens that can't work with other antigens old blood works with them all right and and the second question the colonic irrigation uh, okay so yeah, so so colonic irrigations. I've never had one, but I've sent people for them who I put on fast. Colonic irrigation works assist in the breaking down of getting waste out of the body. But even with a colonic irrigation, you have to do other things to keep that and maintain that. Because if you continue to get a colonic irrigation, you know, and I tell people, my patients, I tell them, I say, well. If you're going to get a colonic irrigation, get them every other week and don't get no more than four. Because what happens is, is that you start destroying that bacteria right. that's in there because of, because of the consistency of that. And what happens is that causes that can cause you to have malnutrition again. And malnutrition, like I said earlier, is not necessarily that, you're, that, that, that you're, 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 your abdomen is protruding, but malnutrition is also a piece where... Um, you are um, thin. You have some people who are vegans that are malnourished because they're not getting the proper nutrients that they need, uh, um, which could now cause other kinds of issues down the road because of the fact that they that they suffer from malnutrition. Right. But colonic irrigation, colonic irrigation works, but there's a lot of other things that you have to do to maintain the balance of that. Yes, sir. All right. Thank you, brother. Agree. Thank you very much. All right. Thank you. 13 away. 
if 13 away from the top, Eliel, and the tweet question, tweeter says, so when I'm craving liver or, or certain food, my body's telling me, for example, that I need vitamin C or B, and I threw in there, if you're craving a beer, what does that mean? So, so when we have cravings, each organ from a child, I'm, a, I'm an acupuncturist by trade and licensed. Each organ has their own set of tastes. Your liver likes sour. Your 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 heart likes um, it, it burnt stuff. Okay. Your kidneys like salt. Your um, lungs they 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 kind of like metal because you know if you get a cold and you get that metal taste in your mouth. And the spleen and the stomach have to do with sweets, which is the digestive system. So if you're craving, for instance, B vitamins, that may be because of the fact that your liver, which stores the B vitamins, and your spleen uh, or your digestive tract are out of balance, and so you might find also that you might get a twitch because, or you might be tired. And so because of that, that's a B12. That, that, that could be a B12 um, situation. It could be a B-complex situation. Because of the fact that that the that that the organ is not able to function because there's a craving. When people have sweet cravings, you know it's really easy to get rid of a sweet craving. It's real. It is. It's real easy. And 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 the recipe is is that you take a tablespoon of steel cut oats. S T E E L cut oats, and you put that tablespoon in a glass of water in a glass, in an eight-ounce glass, and then you put distilled water, not spring water, not alkaline water, distilled water in it because the distilled water is going to extract the nutrients from it. You put a cover over it. You set it on the kitchen table uh, or on the counter overnight away from heat. In the morning, you strain off the oatmeal. Now, if you want to drink the, if you if you want to eat the oatmeal, that's fine, but you strain the, you strain the water off of the oats and you drink the water within a three days, uh, if not less, you'll find that your your sweet cravings diminish. And the beer drinkers. And so and so beer drinkers, they you know if you drink a lot of beer, you're you're putting them hops into your system, and hops is nice, but hops are sedative. So so that that means that as they're sedating, they're sedating the. De- the digestive tract. And so if you're going to drink beer, then you should take enzymes so that it breaks that malt down in the small intestines. And that's where, that's where that has to be broken down at. The alcohol portion of it is synthesized through your liver. So your liver has to synthesize it to, to maintain uh, um, the ability to, to break that alcohol down so that, so that it comes out through the urine so that in some cases it comes out through the fecal matter. And so with the beer, you know, you, again, you're talking about hops. So that's, that's sedating. So when you take in the enzymes, what happens is, is that the enzymes helps the gut. And the enzymes and the probiotics, and more specifically the probiotics, because it's in the gut, and the probiotics to keep it from fermenting and causing you to have yeast because of the fact that when beer is made, it's made with yeast. 
and the hops. And so when that yeast gets into your system, it, it, it begins to expand. And as it expands, what happens is, is that it, it blocks other foods and other nutrients from getting into the, into the small intent and into the blood, which now is called a process called the leaky gut syndrome. And a lot of people have leaky gut syndrome. And that's one of the things that, um, uh, the pro, our program, uh, it's not, it's not weight, it's waste. That's one of the things that we talk about specifically is the factor of how not to have that yeast sitting in your small intestines because of the factor that that can become a carcinogen. You know, it, it candida albicans is actually worse than cancer. And, and the reason I say that is because of the factor that when you have candida albicans, which is yeast that's in your blood and in your small intestines, what happens now is, is the fact that you can't eat nothing that, that's a starch. You can't eat a cookie. You can't eat a piece of bread. You can't eat pasta. You can't eat none of that. You have to eat nothing but fresh vegetables. You can't have any sugar at all and fruits. You have to be real limited with that because if not, it, 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 it continues to increase the yeast, which now causes you to have more um, malnutrition. All right, Doc, hold that thought right there. Eight away from the top of the hour. Another tweet for you. Uh, tweeter says, what do you recommend for men to take to ward off prostate cancer? Okay. So there's a formula that I make that's called, called male toner that, that helps. But, but when we start talking about prostate cancer, we have to talk about the fact of nutrients again. So you're talking about omega-3, 6, and 9. You're talking about taking B vitamins. You're, you're talking about um, wearing, wearing boxers and not briefs so that the scrotum is able to hang outside and not be so, so, so cluttered into, into the crotch of your, of, of your body. You should wear loose pants not tight jeans, those kinds of things, because the, 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 the prostate, which is part of the scrotum, has to be outside of the body. You need to eat clean foods, a lot of vegetables, a lot of fruits, some nuts, because you need, you need some fatty acids. Get away from, stay away from fried food. Stay away from fried food because of the fact that, that that's one of the things that's causing that prostate cancer to happen. We don't oh, have wow. to have... Hold, hold up for right yeah. there, uh, Doc. We got to take a quick break here. Six minutes away from the top there. I'll be back in four minutes. I'll let you finish up and, and the more information on the weight loss program that you have for four weeks. Family, you want to join us, reach out to us at 800-450-7876. Your phone calls in four minutes right here in Baltimore on 1010 WOLB and also in the DMV on FM 95.9 and AM 1450. WOL, where information is power. And good morning, family. We're on with Dr. Akwil Mawakil. I hope I'm pronouncing your name correctly, brother. Uh, forgive me if I'm, I messed it up. But uh, continue to finish your thought on, on the, the, the tweeter who wanted to know about prostate issues. So, so, you know, with that, you need to eat foods um, that, for instance, have lycopene in them, like, toma- like tomatoes. 
Um, now, let me say this about tomatoes. Tomatoes is also a nightshade. So if you've got arthritic pain or you got pain, then you shouldn't be eating tomatoes because of the fact that that has silanine acid, and that silanine acid can can increase the pain. However, on the flip side, that lycopene that's in there, that's going to help to 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 um, balance the prostate to reduce the prevalence of um, prostate cancer. Also, um, virgin olive oil, you know, and nuts, they're, they're, they're heavy in, in, in omega-3 um, fatty acids, and that's what you want. You know, you also want to eat foods like carrots, carrots, um, uh, carrots and cabbage uh, are um, um, foods that you should be eating because of their antioxidant properties. You know, you want to eat foods that have antioxidants. Um, carrots, carrots are very well and very good for cleansing for cleansing the, the 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 body itself. I mean, if you've ever if you've ever done a fast with um, carrots uh, and beets, you'll see that once you once you do that, your whole body begins to vibrate um, electrically. And then you know, um, uh, um, green tea. Green tea is really good. And and Asians and Asians have less prostate issues because of the fact that every day and when I trained in China, every day they drink green tea. Every day they drink green tea. Uh and so, you know, get you some green tea. I would suggest that you get green tea that's not in a in a in a um a tea bag, but it's loose where you can uh, um measure it out and, and take it that way. Because when you do that, it's less manufacturing and um, you have more of the tea than you have of, of other kinds of things in there. The, um, the other piece of that is zinc. As men, we need to have zinc because without the zinc, that's a, that's a telltale uh, um, sign that, that prostate cancer is coming. So we need to maintain the balance of, that, of, of our zinc level. And what I tell men is, is that don't take over 100 milligrams of, of zinc a day. And when you take zinc, you have to take copper because of the fact that zinc will displace copper. And when it displaces copper, it can do several things. One, it can cause your hair to gray uh, um, really early. Two, it can, it can affect your central nervous system. So you, so you really and, – and three, it can uh, affect the, the way that your blood flows through your body. So, so when you take zinc, you're going to take you're going to take three milligrams of um, of copper that will uh, that will create that balance for that. And then there there are other things that you you know that you actually could take um, that's natural that will um, reduce reduce and or eliminate the prospect the prospects of uh, um, of, of prostate cancer. And the and the other piece of that is, is the fact that you know that the, the Chinese is, is 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 so is so detailed to the point where they have it so that depending on your age is depending on how many times a week you should ejaculate, and and so when you when you break it down in that manner, what begins to happen is is that you begin to 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 waltz around um, that whole prostate issue. But it's about keeping yourself healthy. It's about keeping yourself nourished. And, and it's about you loving yourself. 
Right. And, Doc, we got to cut the short here because uh, Dr. Akua is on deck. we get to him momentarily. But the weight loss program that you have, folks want to get more information. How do they reach you? Is there a, a website, email address? So, yeah, so they can, so they can go to www.h-e-a-l-e-n-a-r-t-s.net. Again, it's www.h-e-a-l-e-n-a-r-t-s.net, and it's healingarts.net. Um, I can be reached by phone at 301-249-2445. That's 301 301- Two four nine, two four four five, and if they want to email me, it's info at Dr. Akmal speaks. Info, All right, uh, spell that for spell that for the audience again. Your first name. I, I, I'm I'm about to. It's it's um, info at a k m a l s p e a k s dot com. All right. Thank you, Doctor. And thank you for sharing all this information with us. And, and the weight loss program, it, what time does it start? When? So it starts, it starts next Tuesday on the 27th. It's virtual. It's um, for two hours for four. It's two hours each session for four weeks. So it starts on the 27th, and it ends on the, on the 19th of um, May. All right. Thanks, Doc. And it's thank you. Thank you for sharing all that information with us this morning. Thank you for having me. Be well. Enjoy your life as you peacefully walk in health. All righty. That's Dr. Akmu Mwakil. All right, let's turn our attention now at 6th after the time. Now, Dr. Akua Chike. Uh, uh, Chiku is here. I hope I'm pronouncing it. Akua. Um, that's what I'm trying to say. Chika Akua. Dr. Akua Hotep, welcome back to the program. Hotep, great to be with you, Carl. Let me just tell the family because he's been here. He's been here before. He's an assistant professor of education leadership at Clark Atlanta University. He's also going to share with us today the unique way of using the beauty of black history and culture to improve our children's literacy and achievement. Give us a little bit about your background because it's been a minute since you've been here. Sure, sure. Um, The first part of my professional life was as a middle school language arts teacher. So I, I was a teacher in public schools for um, for 10 years, and then I was a reading specialist for three years. But each of those years, I was teaching in the area of language arts. And oftentimes, I was dealing with students who were performing below grade level. I was also teaching in predominantly black schools. And so with my experiences, I'm a former teacher of the year as well. And I have written and developed a number of African-centered and culturally relevant reading resources for students, teachers, as well as parents. And I got to ask you this question, because we woke up one morning and then we found out that our our children are not learning. They're not reading and then also doing math. They're failing. And they gave the numbers for Baltimore, just horrendous, the school, the students in Baltimore. But Baltimore is not alone. The the public school system is is just failing our our students. Why are our students struggling? Just, for example, with reading. Why are they struggling how to read? 
Sure, sure. Well, first, a shout out to all of the hardworking uh, teachers and administrators and parents who are doing their very best with our young people. But there are some systemic issues that are uh, that have been roadblocks and barriers to our children's academic excellence. One of the things that I noticed when I was uh, a language arts teacher and a reading teacher is that the curriculum um, did not meet the needs of our children. The curriculum that was being taught uh, didn't have examples of black excellence in it that our children could take an example from. In addition to that, most teachers, however well-intentioned, um, have not been trained in culturally relevant and responsive teaching methods. In other words, scientific research has shown that there are certain method, uh, methods of teaching um, that unlock and unleash the brilliance within our children. And most haven't been exposed to those methods. In addition to that, some of the challenging situations that our children find themselves in the home and in the community have added to that. So prior to the pandemic, uh, there was already some challenges in literacy with black children. But coming into, through, and out of the pandemic, those numbers have dropped even more significantly. And so it's very important that uh, we kind of sound the alarm and let people know that we need to be focusing on literacy because literacy affects all other areas of education. So in other words, when a child goes into science class, they're going to have to read. When they go into their social studies class, they're going to have to read. Obviously, in language arts and reading class, they're going to have to read. But even in math, how will they understand a, a math problem, uh, a word problem, if they can't read? So we like to say that all teachers are reading teachers. If you ask a teacher what they teach, they may say, oh, I teach science or social studies. No, all teachers are reading teachers. But guess what? Parents must be reading teachers as well. And so this is not a problem that cannot be solved. It's just that a lot of the resources go in the wrong direction oftentimes. And so that's why I'm uh, making brothers and sisters aware of some of the things that we can do. Well, how do you, at 11 minutes after the time there, how do you attack this problem, though, without it seeming that our children are somehow in fear of they can't uh, read and understand and comprehend as well as white students can't, that we need remedial uh, uh, efforts to get us up to par? But you're saying that's not the issue. They're, they're not smarter than us. But, so what's the issue then? How do you say that? Because, you know, that's, that's what you're going to get. Oh, I tell you, those are the ones who are bringing down the test scores, those, those black kids. Those, those are the ones. That, that's what the white uh, teachers and uh, school administrators are going to say. Why can't they learn just like our children? How do you combat that? Well, first, our children, as I said before, our children learn in very unique ways. There are certain methods that have been proven uh, to unlock and unleash the genius within black students. But one of the problems is the way that the uh, scores are reported and different things of that nature. So I'll give you an example. Many people who are listening uh, have heard probably the term achievement gap. And that term is problematic from this standpoint. Oftentimes when you hear that term achievement gap, it's, um, it's supposedly the gap in achievement between white students and black students, uh, white student achievement supposedly being higher. That's problematic because white achievement is mediocre at best. And so we're not striving to be equal to white achievement. Our goal is black excellence, okay? And that's far above where white achievement is. 
But secondly, um, when you use the term achievement gap, that leaves out a significant understanding of what's really happening in so many of our schools. It's not really an achievement gap. It's an opportunity and access gap. These access and opportunity gaps cause the persistent uh, academic gaps. Let me give you an example of what I mean. When I say access gap, many of our children don't have access to highly qualified and certified teachers in the core content areas of language arts, math, science, and social studies. In other words, you go into a lot of schools, and this was before the pandemic, you go into a lot of schools, the teachers teaching those subjects were not certified in those areas. Well, now there's even more of a shortage of teachers and even more of a shortage of black teachers. And so a lot of times it may be a substitute. It may be somebody who, who has not been trained in that area. So access to a quality, equitably funded school is an example of an access gap. An example of an opportunity gap is, is the lack of, of certified teachers in the content areas in predominantly black schools. So it's these persistent access and opportunity gaps that lead to what people call these achievement gaps. And it's very right. And hold that thought right there, Dr. Akua. We got to take a short break. When we come back, I'll let you finish your thought and tell us, because, you know, these this, our students, mostly they're in the black neighborhoods. The teachers are black. The administrators are black. And yet still our students are failing. What are they not doing? Can you can you you know point that out and help them out? And those teachers going to work uh, this morning, please drive carefully and please listen to Dr. Akua. We back in four minutes though, right here in Baltimore on 1010 WLB, and also in the DMV or on FM 95.9 and AM 1450. WOL or information is power. And good morning, family. And our guest is Dr. Akua. Dr. Akua is an educator and discussing why we, why we our children are failing in the school system. And if you don't have, you know, you, you, this should be a concern. Even if you don't have a child or a grandchild in the school system, the children are our future. That's what they have to compete now. It's different when we were going to school. Now, with the internet has made the world so much smaller. They're not just competing with with students stateside. They could be globally. So we've got to figure out a way how to turn the system around. And before we left for the uh, the uh, break and I was asking Dr. Akua, I'll let him finish his thought, but also because part of the problem is the, these school systems are run by people who look like us, administrators, teachers, uh, they run the schools. It's, you know, it's still, we're still failing, but Dr. Akua, I'm going to let you finish your thought and then tackle that question for me and then Charles in Baltimore has a question for you. Okay, sure. So uh, again, I want to be very clear and, and send a, a shout out to hardworking teachers and educational administrators who are showing up for our children every day. I don't want it to seem as if uh, I or we are bashing them because we know that they work very hard. But let me say also um, that when you ask the question before the break, well, what are, what are black teachers not doing? A big part of the challenge is that most black teachers have not been trained in culturally relevant and responsive teaching methods that are known to transform our students' progress. Okay. In addition to that, um, many of our children are coming from home situations and communities where there's a need for trauma-informed care. Many of our children have experienced trauma in the home or in the community, and it goes unaddressed, and that stands as a barrier to their academic achievement. So culture is the key. That's the critical mediating factor 
and increasing student achievement. But another key is the social-emotional learning modalities that allow a child to move past, to process and move past their trauma so that they can get to academic excellence. So there has to be some bridges between the school and the community, between the teachers and the parents to really be able to reach the children. And of course, this is the challenging part. I don't mean to oversimplify that part, but we can talk about some solutions as we move on. Love to talk about solutions. That's what we're here for. 23 after Tom. As I mentioned, Charles is waiting for us. He's in Baltimore. Charles, your question for Dr. Akua. Yes. How you doing, doctor? Doing well. How are you today? Uh, I'm great. I'm great. Now, my parents used to ask me, how did I actually know something? And I would say, they said, they said. And my parents would ask me, did you actually check for yourself? Did you do the experiment? So I would ask, did you actually research and verify what you're saying about reading? And what receipts do you have to back up these assumptions? What studies have you done? Because it seems like only white studies have been done. Thanks. All right. Mm. Thanks, Charles. That's a, that's a great question. Thank you. And it sounds like you have uh, amazing parents, and we need more parents doing um, that daily debrief with their children to get them to do critical thinking. When you ask what studies I've done, I'd like to invite you to check out a recent report that I published called Dismantling the Preschool to Prison Pipeline through Black Literacy and Education for Transformation. Again, it's called Dismantling the Preschool to Prison Pipeline through Black Literacy and Education for Transformation. You can download this special report for free. Um, I was commissioned by the Wayfinder Foundation to write this report, and we did a national campaign going to, uh, we launched it from Washington, D.C. We went to Minneapolis. We went to uh, Jackson, Mississippi, and we'll be going to some other uh, cities and states to do the same. But you can go to wayfinder.foundation. Again, wayfinder.foundation and download that free report. When you get to that website, simply click on resources. Again, wayfinder.foundation. Um, and that's a special report that I did specifically on this issue. If you go to, uh, to my website, readingrevolution.org, you can see uh, several of our books, um, some of the reports that we've done and research that we've conducted. One of those books is called Education for Transformation, The Keys to Releasing the Genius of African-American Students. And another book is called Honoring Our Ancestral Obligations, Seven Steps to Black Student Success. So I'm really glad that you brought up that point because a lot of times we're relying on information uh, from white scholars, and uh, that's inappropriate oftentimes for solving black problems. So one of the things that would um, distinguish the type of research that I conduct is that I typically rely on the scholarship and past research of black scholars, in particular Afrocentric scholars who have centered us in the best of our history and culture. And using that lens uh, provides some insights and solutions that we don't typically find. So thank you for that question, brother. All right, 26 at the top. A tweet question coming in, or a comment, actually. A tweeter says, the parents in Florida are having to sign permission slips just for teachers to discuss black history in the school system. I want to get your thoughts on that. 
So for that, I will call people's attention to a, a Washington Post article that I wrote back in August. If you just Google my name, Chike Akua, um, and Washington Post, it'll come up. And my name is spelled C-H-I-K-E, last name Akua, A-K-U-A. The situation in Florida is very interesting, Brother Carl, because um, actually Florida has received a lot of media attention for a lot of their oppressive and repressive policies relative to the teaching of our history. The interesting thing about it is that most people don't know, and I talk about this in the Washington Post article, is that Florida actually has the most comprehensive law as it relates to uh, black history. The problem is most people don't know about it, and teachers can't teach what they don't know. This was the subject of my doctoral dissertation. The law came out in 1994, and I examined a number of state laws relative to the teaching of black history, and I found Florida's to be most comprehensive in this way. Florida's law specifically says that all teachers must teach the African and African-American contribution to whatever subject that they teach, not just in social studies. Other state laws would would just relegate it to the social studies classroom, and they would say that teachers just had to teach about slavery. Well, we know our story didn't start in slavery, and when you start our story in slavery or civil rights, you're leaving out thousands upon thousands of years of incredible accomplishments. So one of the distinguishing features of the Florida statute or the Florida African-American history legislation is they said specifically you must teach the African and African-American contribution to whatever subject. So not just in social studies, but what is the African and African-American contribution to math, the African and African-American contribution to science, and on down the line. But again, teachers can't teach what they don't know. So I've been commissioned over the last 15 years to provide professional development to teachers and leaders in the state of Florida. Uh, In addition to that, uh, written curriculum for them and and provided even online training and other resources to them. But then the current administration came in and began developing retrograde policies that are intended to erase our history. And this is why it it is something that has always been, and that is that our education must start in the home. If we know that these things are happening, then we must start with our children at home to make sure that they can read and write properly and to make sure that they're exposed to the beauty uh, of their history and culture. All right, 30 minutes at the top. Dr. Akua is our guest. Earlier you mentioned, Dr. Akua, there's a shortage of teachers. There's also a, an acute shortage of black teachers, especially black male teachers. How do, how do we get over that hump? And what's the problem? Why can't we have the, more of uh, our youngsters who are going to college, going into the teaching profession? Well, as Malcolm X said, of all of our studies, history is best qualified to reward all research. So when we talk about the shortage of black teachers, it is extremely important to understand that it has not always been that way. And as a matter of fact, there have been specific efforts to make sure that there's a shortage of black and black male teachers. If you go back prior to the 1954 Brown versus Board of Education decision, there were many black teachers and many black male teachers. As a matter of fact, it was one of the most uh, cherished, 
coveted and respected professions in the black community, okay? But when the 1954 Brown versus Board of Education decision was released, it, the supposed intention was to desegregate schools. But instead of leading to desegregation and supposedly integration, it actually led to the disintegration of black schools. And Dr. Leslie Fenwick tells us in her book, Jim Crow's Pink Slip, she tells us that literally over 100,000 black teachers were either demoted, displaced, or out-and-out fired as a result of the 1954 Brown versus Board of Education decision. What does that mean, demoted? You had principals who were demoted to assistant principal and sent to white schools where, where some of them literally had their office in a closet and they had no power to do what uh, uh, an assistant principal would normally do. So that's what we mean by demoted. If they were an assistant principal, they were sent back into the classroom as opposed to being an assistant principal. So many were demoted, displaced, uh, taken out of black schools, sent to white schools where they were disrespected and disregarded. And then some were just out and out fired uh, and not offered a contract. And so this displacement of over 100,000 black teachers we are now seeing the impact and the effect of that on our children, on our schools, and on our communities, because this is, is the first generation that has the least access to black teachers. Uh, I know in the DMV, uh, there are a lot of schools that do have black teachers, but when you go throughout America, it is not so in that way. And thank you for mentioning that. And hopefully the teachers, have, have, uh, at least I know they're trying to get a new contract. They've been working for, for months or years probably now without a new contract in the Washington, D.C. area. Come up, we come, we've got to take a short break. When we come back, though, some of the things that we can do, how do we get our people to understand that the, the, the oppressor, they plan long term. We, we look play short ball, small ball. <laughs> they're looking long term. They want to make sure they stay on top forever. That's how the system of racism, white supremacy works. That's how Dr. Welsh taught us. That's what they're doing. This is why the problem is with it starts in the school system. And they can hope that will continue so we continue our students don't get better educated and their children won't get better educated and the cycle continues while their students, they reap the benefits and they keep us down. So if you can figure that out, this is why you need to get involved, not because you don't have a child in the school system, because it's it's an attack on all of us. And then get off my soapbox and take this short break and come back and Dr. Ku will give us some solutions to what we can do to change the, the, the disparity between us and the others when it comes to especially reading, but all, math as well as when it comes to education. Family, you want to join this conversation, reach out to us at 800-450-7876. Your phone calls in four minutes right here in Baltimore on 1010 WOLB and also in the DMV on FM 95.9 and AM 1450. WOL, where information is power. And good morning once again, family. 20 minutes away from the top there with our guest, Dr. Achika Akua. He's an educator, a Pan-Africanist as well. Before we go back to him, let me just remind you, coming up later this morning, we're going to hear from uh, A. Peter Bailey. This is the 59th anniversary of Malcolm X's assassination. Brother Peter was at the Audubon Ballroom in, in Manhattan when uh, uh, Brother Malcolm was assassinated. He was actually one of the last persons to speak to Brother Malcolm, so he's going to tell us his story. He's going to take us back there 59 years ago. Before we uh, reached uh, out 
out to uh, uh, Peter Bailey, though. We're going to speak with Black Women for Positive Changes, Dr. Stephanie Meyer. She's going to update us on the group's nonviolence uh, techniques. And tomorrow we'll be joined by Brother Ishmael Muhammad. He's one of the sons of Elijah Muhammad. He's going to preview this weekend's Savior Day, Savior's Day, which is going to take place in Detroit. And also we're going to be joined by the uh, Kematologists and Griots. Brother Ashra Kwesi and Mary Kwesi, you know, they're saying, know thyself. See, that's the, the, the genesis of our problem. We don't know who we are. <laughs> and people will tell us anything. They'll tell us you're a, you're an ADOS or you're a fundamental American. <laughs> Basically, you're African. But anyway, they're going to be here and they'll explain that for us. So make sure if you're in Baltimore, your radio's locked in tight on 1010 WOLB. If you're in the DMV, we're on FM 95.9 and AM 1450 WOL. All right, Dr. Aku, I'm going to let you finish your thought, though. But give us some solutions what what can we do not necessarily if we we're not necessarily working in in the school system and for those you know recommendations for those in the school system and those of us who are outside sure one quick thing uh as a dovetail into solutions it's important to know also that one of the challenges is that multi-millions of dollars in just about every school district are spent on curriculum materials that continue to miseducate our children. I can't emphasize that enough. Multi-millions of dollars are spent every year by curriculum that are not created by black people or for black children. And so- Hold that thought right there, Dr. Kua. Is that done intentionally or is, is that by design or by accident? It's done intentionally, it's by design, and also by default. So imagine if you have this multi-million dollar budget and you have to spend this money. Not spending it is not an option. You have to spend it and you're under a deadline. And you may not know any black vendors, but we're going to share some solutions with you. But that happens every year in almost every major district. And it constitutes what uh, Dr. William Watkins calls the, uh, the white architects of black education. So even though they may not be there, these large white companies are still walking away with all this money, having provided curricula that provides no demonstrated track record of excellence. So now with that in mind, now let's look at solutions. And so before you go to solutions, you got to remind the audience that that money is not their money. That's our money. That's taxpayers' money. But yes, go ahead. Absolutely. And school districts must be held accountable for that. Okay. So now let me rewind back to a number of years ago when I was a reading specialist. When I was hired, the principal told me that he was going to send all of these students to me who had not passed a state test in reading, but they did not have a curriculum in place, which I was glad that they didn't have a curriculum in place because I already knew that it probably wouldn't meet the needs of our children. So every day I would write up a brief reading selection about a black hero or shero, ancient or modern. And I would add to it 10 multiple choice questions. And those multiple choice questions would deal with uh, issues like vocabulary development, context clues, uh, main idea, supporting details, all of the things that would show up on a state reading test. The only difference between what I was doing and what my students would encounter on the state reading test was that my reading selections were culturally relevant and responsive because it was about black heroes and sheroes. Well, over time, as I began to collect these reading selections, it became clear that it should be a book. So I called on a good friend and, uh, of mine who's also a teacher, Tavara Stevens, and we co-authored the book, Reading Revolution. Well, that book did very, very well. It went national. A lot of different 
uh, school districts and parents were using it. And we saw tremendous uh, improvement with children's engagement and achievement. And this is important because a lot of times you hear reports about student achievement, but engagement comes before achievement. Engagement means uh, a child's interest in what they're doing, the fact that they're on task, okay? Well, in 2018, we began digitizing the content of Reading Revolution. What do I mean by digitizing? I mean, we wanted to put it on an interactive online platform that parents, teachers, and students could access. And we have successfully completed that, or we're in stage one of that. And so uh, part one can be accessed online at readingrevolution.org. But here's what we've added. Knowing our children's um, learning styles, we have added a captioned video to go along with each reading selection. Now, why is that important? Because the captioned video allows our children to hear the pronunciation of the words and to see the words on the screen as they're being said, along with pictures and images, pictures and positive images of people who look like them. So in addition to the 10 multiple choice questions, we have a captioned video. We have uh, a vocabulary activity. We have, <clears throat> we have a grammar activity and we have a writing activity. So there's four major activities for each of the 90 reading selections. And again, it's called Reading Revolution Online. Now, parents and teachers can go online to readingrevolution.org for a free demo. Again, readingrevolution.org. We want parents to check this out uh, and to utilize this at home. And the idea is to do one of these brief reading selections a day. And that will allow our children to get uh, what Dr. Edward Robinson called vitamin I, I for identity. And in the process of getting that vitamin I, uh, then they will also begin to develop their reading uh, comprehension skills, their critical thinking skills, their vocabulary development, grammar, and writing skills, all in a culturally relevant way. But not only do we want parents to go on there and start doing this at home, we want parents to start taking it to their schools and telling their teachers and principals and superintendents about it. We are in several school districts where they have purchased school-wide site license or district-wide site licenses to have access to Reading Revolution. And we are on, we're on a mission. And what we want to do is we want to reach at least one million black children. But I want to be clear, Reading Revolution online is not just for black children, because you may run into that. Somebody may say, an administrator or a teacher may say, well, we don't just have black children. Well, guess what? All children need to know the truth about our history and culture. And so that's why we don't just talk about problems. We create solutions. We don't believe in having a critique without a corrective. And I couldn't sit idly by and watch our children struggle like this without putting a solution in place. So Reading Revolution is our solution. So you can go to readingrevolution.org, and you can get a free demo. Um, and so that's one of the things that I would highly recommend that we've put in place, Brother Carl. In addition to that, it's very important that we have quiet time in the evening where we spend at least 15 minutes reading with our child asking them questions about what they read and so forth. That quiet time 
is so very important when you talk about reading fluency, when you talk about reading comprehension, the ability of a child to understand what they read, uh, the ability for them to read without stumbling over words. That's what fluency is, is about. Uh, vocabulary development and things of that nature. doesn't take an hour or two every evening, just 15 minutes a day. This is what research has shown. 15 minutes a day will help to increase our children's literacy levels tremendously, but it has to be consistent and it has to be in an orderly and quiet environment. All right. And, and before I t- uh, Sandra in Baltimore has a question for you, but before I do a tweet just came in and said that many of our children don't have computers and Wi-Fi in their homes. Where can they go and, and uh, get these resources that you're talking about? Sure. I would, I would encourage them to, to do this in school, maybe after school or to go to the local library. That's another way of doing it. Um, but these are some of the things, definitely the local library is wh- where that quiet reading time can happen. Um, if you don't have a computer or a laptop, um, you can certainly use your cell phone. But if you don't have a cell phone or don't have uh, Internet access, then we would encourage people to to go to the library for that. Okay. And 11, I'm way from the top there. Sandra, as I mentioned, is called from Baltimore. Sandra's on line one. Good morning, Sandra. You're on with Dr. Akua. Good morning, Carl. I can barely hear you. We, well, you're good. We can hear you. But So go ahead and speak with Dr. Akua. Doctor, I was wondering, maybe that we are going all about education our children the wrong way. Maybe we need to go back to the drawing board. And by that, I mean, maybe we need to open our own school and have our own teachers to come in and teach our children from the beginning to the end. Because evidently, despite education, is not working. The children have to go back and learn from scratch the ABCs all the way up to the age where they can begin to read and understand. Maybe we are expecting to put too much on them with the households that they come from, the type of parents that they have. We need everything for them. So maybe we need to go back and do our own educating. And this is when the people with money could come in. They could build schools for our children, for our teachers to teach, and some of our teachers to come back and reteach in the, in our school system the way it used to be. All right. Let's give him a chance to respond. Thanks, Sandra. Dr. Akua? Thank sure. Thank you for that, sister. And I absolutely agree with you. And there's there's a very distinguished tradition of independent black schools and African-centered schools who have done just that. Um, And and so I certainly agree with that. The challenge for me is um, to meet our children where they are. So even if you took all of the independent schools that currently exist now, they could not service the millions of black children that are in need of education. And so it's important that we hold uh, those who work in public education to accountability. As a matter of fact, Uh, Public education, particularly in the South, uh, as Du Bois tells us in the book Black Reconstruction, was largely a black idea. So we were the ones that that made it possible for public education to take place. Uh, When we came out of the Civil War, we advocated for that and demanded free public education. And that is because we had it in Africa. We had it in the Nile Valley of Africa, free public education for males and females. 
When you look at the great empires of West Africa, we had free public education for males and females. When you look at the Moors, when they were in Spain, one of the first things that they did when they uh, took over that area, they created free public schools for males and females. So that is a part of our ancestral tradition that goes back thousands of years. So it's only natural that once we gained our freedom here in America, we did the same thing. We advocated for the same thing. Again, I want to say that I agree with you that we should and must have our own schools and that we must support those schools. However, we also have uh, millions um, that will not necessarily have an independent black school near them and that will be serviced uh, by public schools. And so we have to have a presence in all of these spaces. All right, seven away from the top of the hour. We're coming up on a break, but when we come back, I want you to address the issue of Ebonics. You know, some people think that, uh, and I'm sure you remember the, the uproar when it was when people were talking about whether we should use Ebonics in schools that our, our, our children would learn much better if they were taught Ebonically, and, and people can complain and say, no, because when they go in the real world, uh, they got to use standard English. But I want to get your thoughts on Ebonics. Can, can, many of us are bilingual, so to speak, so mm-hmm. they un- we understand how to use Ebonics and when to use it. Should this be taught in schools or this technique be taught in schools? I want to get your thoughts on that when we get back. Family, we'll be back in uh, four minutes right here with Dr. Akur. You can reach out to us if you want right here in Baltimore on 1010 WOLB. If you're in the DMV, we're on FM 95.9 and AM 1450. WOL, where information is power. And good morning, family. A minute after the top of the hour, Dr. Stephanie Myers from Black Women for Positive Changes on deck. We'll get to her momentarily. Right now, we're with Dr. Akud. We're talking about education. He has some solutions to the problems why Jamal can't read. And before we left for the break, we're talking about Ebonics. You know, should we use Ebonics in the school system? And Dr. Akud, before you answer that question, Deidre is on, uh, calling from Baltimore on line three. He wants to talk about Ebonics so real quickly. Deidre, good morning. Yes, good morning. Yeah, I want to say something about Ebonics, yeah. I think that is the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard. We need to teach our children how to speak properly in the beginning. And this Ebonics is is dumbing the children down. That's making it worse than what it would have been in the first place. No, that's holding our own children back to make somebody think that that's some language. It's ridiculous. No, thank you. Okay. Thanks, Deidre. Dr. Akua, your thoughts? Sure. Uh, well, what is called Ebonics or African-American vernacular English has been studied by linguists, and it's been determined that uh, the way that we speak has West African speech patterns in it, So, and it has been determined to be a language. There are certain uh, patterns that you see uh, that characterize a language as opposed to a dialect. So what we call Ebonics or African-American vernacular English and the way that we hear our brothers and sisters speak and the way that we speak, um, it is actually a language. The challenge for us is, is that we need to use it as a bridge to standard English. Our children need to be multilingual, not just bilingual. And so they need to understand standard English, or if we can keep it really real, as, as Dr. A. Hilliard said, let's call it money English. Let's call it what it is, because in order to advance in, the, advance in this society, you have to be able to understand standard English. 
That doesn't mean that you have to give up your home language. It simply means you have to know how to make the switch. When I was growing up, I spoke the way that I spoke around my friends and in the community. But when an adult entered the context, I made the switch to standard English. What we're finding with a lot of young people today is not only can they not make the switch, they don't even know that a switch is necessary. And so that's when it's incumbent upon parents and teachers to teach children the difference. This is something that I did in my language arts and reading class where I had a daily activity for them. And that's why we have a grammar activity in Reading Revolution Online. And I would tell my students, I would say, you know, I'm listening to you. And the activities that I had in this grammar review were based on things that I would hear the students say. I'll give you an example. They might say, he ain't have his homework. So I would write that on the board. He ain't have his homework. And my students would have to rewrite that sentence, adding capitalization, punctuation, and changing the verb tense where necessary. Okay? And so there's nothing wrong with the way that we speak as long as, as the person who hears us understands our communication. But the bottom line is, in order for us to improve our communication skills, our children have to be multilingual. They have to be able to go into any room and be able to communicate with whoever is there. And so uh, I would say there's nothing to be ashamed about in terms of the way that we speak. When we were brought here, we had, a, we had different languages, and English was forced upon us. But there's no reason why we can't master uh, English as well uh, as a matter of survival. Yeah, but Dr. Kuh, the, the question is, should you, should, should you, as an educator, teach in Ebonics then? Would, would you be able to reach well, our students better if you taught them Ebonically? So I think that was a big misconception that was blown up by the media when it was being said that teachers were teaching Ebonics. We don't, we don't have to teach Ebonics. Our children come to us already knowing Ebonics. We were using it as a bridge to get them to standard English. And an example of that is the one that I just said, where I would write sentences on the board that I heard them say, and they would have to translate it, listen to my language, translate, not correct, translate it into standard English. When you say that that's bad English and, and things of that nature, that suggests that there's something wrong with the home language. We don't want to tell uh, our children that there's something wrong with the way your mama talks or the way that, you know, that your people talk. It's, we just need to translate it into standard English so that our children know how to speak and communicate in whatever context they're in. All right, hold that thought right there. Dr. Myers, stay with us for a second. You've seen a little bit minute here. William's on line three calling from Fort Lauderdale. William, your, your question for Dr. Akua, real quick. Yeah, thank you very much. Yeah, I, I've always felt like slavery, the trauma of slavery when, when we weren't allowed to read, I always has something to do with uh, our ability to read, although we can't overcome anything. But that's my question. Thank you. All right. Thanks, William. Dr. Kua? Thank you, brother, for that question. Uh, yeah, it's interesting that we were the ones that taught the world uh, reading and writing and language and literature. But through the enslavement process, it became against the law to read. But coming through and out of the enslavement experience, something very interesting happened. We were able to close the literacy gap by 50% with the first generation out of slavery. Why? Because it was a community-focused endeavor. We were very, very clear 
that in order for us to be free, in order to improve our life chances, we needed every black person, as many as possible, to be able to read. No one was too young and no one was too old to learn. And so really our churches became like the schools um, where everybody learned to read. This was, again, a community endeavor because it was understood that you can't advocate on behalf of black people if you're illiterate. We, we need everybody to be able to read. We need people to be able to read and interpret the laws. We need people to be able to read and, and prepare other people to read. And so that was the difference back then. So we know that it can be done because it's been done before. And certainly our ancestors faced even more challenging circumstances. All right. Thank you uh, again for that call uh, from William. Uh, Dr. Akua, how can folks reach you? Because, you know, that's a whole different subject. We, they taught us how to read and write, but it's their languages. And I don't want to even go there. That's a whole different topic. But how can folks reach you? They want to get more information about how to improve their children or the teachers who are listening to us right now, how they can improve reaching our children and improve those, uh, improve those test scores for us. Sure. The best way to reach me is to go to readingrevolution.org readingrevolution.org. Uh, and when you go there, um, you can uh, click on parents for some of the special offers we have there. You can get a free demo. Uh, you can also do a speaker request. I'm actually going to be speaking in the DMV area on March 16th, and I'll get you some more information uh, about that, Carl, as we get closer to it. But we have books, we have posters, and you can also email me uh, from that website, um, by clicking on speaker request. In addition to that, the Washington Post article uh, is on there as well. You can just click on Dr. Akua in the news, and it has a Washington Post article, a Black Enterprise article. It has the special report that I referenced before called Dismantling the Preschool to Prison Pipeline Through Black Literacy and Education for Transformation. So everything that you need is at readingrevolution.org. If you want to email me directly, you can simply uh, type in Dr. Akua at dracua.net. That's D-R-A-K-U-A at D-R-A-K-U-A dot net. All right. Thank you, Dr. Akua. Thank you for the work you do, especially looking after our young people. And thank you for the information you shared with us this morning. All right. Thank you, Brother Carl. Appreciate you. And Dr. Akua out there down in Atlanta. All right, let's turn our attention now to Dr. Stephanie Myers from Black Women for Positive Change. Dr. Myers, thanks for being so patient with us. Absolutely. It was wonderful to hear Dr. Akua's comments. Thank you very much. Yeah, but we want to talk about violence or nonviolence. You know, let's talk about the philosophy of violence because that's what Black Women for Positive Change, you guys have been coming up with techniques to reduce the violence in our community because, you know, nobody else seems to care about the violence, but you as a group, your group have been doing that. So let's talk about the philosophy of violence. Why is there a need for philosophy of nonviolence? Well, Carl, just as Dr. Akua was talking about the legacy of our ancestors, our ancestors endured a lot of violence when they were brought over here under force into enslavement. And it's incredible over 400 years, the number of people who died, the number of people who fought. So we owe our ancestors. We owe them to stop violence in America. We need to transform this country. Now, we know black people built America with our ancestors' hands and hard labor and sweat. And now we have a country 
that is completely saturated with violence. And it's just completely unacceptable. When you consider that so far this year, Carl, over 5,000 people have died from gun violence. So, And we're just at the end of February. We're not even finished with February. 4,994 people dying of, of gun violence. And there have already been 46 mass shootings. And we saw the most recent one down in Kansas City last week after the Super Bowl game. And here we have to look at the news and see our community arrested because of some kind of fight that they had out in the street after the Kansas City uh, march, after the parade. We have to transform this whole belief in violence. And really, Carl, it's, it's something that we can do. We can change the culture of violence. And Black Women for Positive Change, we've been working on this in collaboration with our good brothers, men like you. We have to work together to focus on specific strategies. All right, but Dr. Dr. Myers, uh, you know, violence is part of the DNA of this country. Uh, you know, Rap Brown, Jamil, uh, Imam Jamil Abdul Al-Amin, known as Rap Brown, he said, he said back in the days in the 60s, the violence is as American as cherry pie. It's part of the country's DNA. How are you going to change that? Well, he's right, and we have to change that DNA. And America has changed drastically in many different categories already. We went from enslavement, to freedom. Now, yes, we think we deserve more freedom through reparations, but at least we weren't in shackles. That was a major culture change. Women in this country have gone from being in the kitchen to now being CEOs, vice president of the United States. That was a culture change, the change of the status of women. We've even seen the LGBTQ community <clears throat> go through major changes in their status and who they are. So we know that culture change is possible in America. And we know that black people have the vision and the capacity to do it. So we have a slogan we use, we must change the culture of violence in America and the world. That needs to be our mission going forth in the 21st century. Now, people of color have a tremendous history of this. Indigenous people in America, the Native Americans, they have all kinds of strategies where the tribal communities come together and, and have peace and negotiation. In Africa, we have a long tradition of our tribes coming together as the chief would assemble the people to have a discussion about the problems in that tribe. We have strategies in Africa, in Black America, in Native America, in parts of Asian America, where people come together and they negotiate. They talk. They don't pick up a gun and start shooting each other. They sit down and work it out. That's the kind of model that we need. And we need people like Dr. Akua and other educators to work to help the children learn how to resolve conflict. And, Carl, we have some outstanding organizations in the country that we partner with that are specialists in this whole issue of conflict resolution. And, and hold that thought right there, Dr. Myers. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, I'll let you explain that conflict resolutions. Because you, and you mentioned our children. Right now, there's a lot of violence around high school campuses. You know, all the high schools, not just in Washington, D.C. and Baltimore, but just about all the high schools. What can you tell us? What, what can you suggest or, or what would you recommend 
to to you know sort of uh, you know get that violence to if not recede but but you know replace it with something else so that our children don't grow up in this this spectacle of violence against each other 14 after the top of the hour running late we got to take a short break family we're back in six minutes with dr stephanie myers from black woman for positive change you got a question for her reach out to us at 800-450-7876 and we'll take your phone calls in four minutes right here in baltimore on 1010 wolb and also in the dmv on fm 95.9 and am 1450 wol where information is power. And good morning once again, family. 21 minutes after the top of the hour, Dr. Stephanie Myers from Black Women for Positive Change. We're talking about the violence, and their, you know, their group is dedicated to stopping the violence. They're a nonviolence group. They have some new techniques they want to share with us. But before we left, she was talking about uh, the conflict resolutions, especially when it comes to the violence that's surrounding our children around our schools. So, Dr. Myers, I'm going to let you explain that for us. Yes, conflict resolution, anger management, These are techniques that people refer to as mediation and helping people to learn how to disagree without escalation. We have to de-escalate the anger. When people encounter each other and they get into a fight, there are techniques that they can learn that can help them avoid getting killed. They can walk away from the fight. They can deliberately bring the tone of the fight down. They can interact with the person that they're disagreeing with and say, look, let's try to find some things to agree on. Conflict resolution is a skill. We should all be going to class to learn how to do it because most of the the gun violence deaths are occurring in the home. Domestic violence is one of the key reasons between domestic violence and suicide. This is where a lot of the gun violence is happening. So we know right at the kitchen table is where the conflict is beginning, where the anger is. It's in the house. It's between mom and dad. It's between the siblings. It's between the neighbors. So this is where we have to learn these tools. And there's a lot of information about conflict resolution. There are books that are available. It's online. We had our 12th annual Month of Nonviolence in October. And every year, Black Women for Positive Change, in collaboration with our partners, Every Town for Gun Safety, National Association for Community Mediation, Omega Sci-Fi, and a whole bunch of others. We pulled together events all over the world to promote the concept of nonviolence, conflict resolution, and anger management. A lot of people don't know about these things. So we introduced to them, this is something you can do in your school, in your churches, in your home. These are techniques that can work. And one example, Carl, that I really love is we had a young person in Pittsburgh who was in a peace circle, and that's the methodology that you can use in your schools and your home. It's called a peace circle. Everyone sits around together in a circle, and they begin to talk about what's on their mind, what's bothering them. Are they unhappy about something? Expressing themselves. And our young people don't get a chance to do that. They're expressing themselves through social media, but they should be expressing themselves to their mom, their dad, their uncles, their aunts, their grandparents. That's who they should learn how to express themselves to. So at any rate, this little boy in his family, his mom and dad used to fight all the time. And so after he'd been through the peace circles and his mom and dad started to fight, the little boy said, Mommy, Daddy, let's have a peace circle. 
and his mom and dad were so shocked, they sat down with him, the three of them, and they talked, and the fight went away. So we know this can work. This comes out of African, indigenous culture. We know that peace, love, and understanding, and nonviolence, the way Dr. King taught it, we know that it works. We just have to do it. But you know what, uh, Dr. Dr. Myers, 26 after the top of the hour, usually when the, the flashpoint, when the violence, you know, comes up, it, it's so fast, you don't get it, you know, sit down, and, okay, should we talk this out? Because right away there's a reaction. How do you deal with that, the time element? That's right. You're right. When the violence flashes, like it did in Kansas the other day, you know, it's all over, and we see it every day here in the district. The gunshot wounds, it's prevention, Carl. And a lot of people have trouble believing in prevention. You have to focus on prevention before the gun gets pulled out of the backpack. Because once it's pulled out of the backpack, it's too late. So we have to get to all of our children. We need to make sure that we elect people who believe in violence prevention. And electing people, voting is critical right now. We've got to help our people understand. I don't care how angry you are. You don't feel you got what you needed, blah, blah, blah. We need to focus on which leaders at the federal, state, and local level are going to prevent violence so that the peace circles that kids participate in in high school, they do that every week at school or even every day. But when it's time to pull the gun out of the backpack, they don't do it because they don't have the gun in the backpack. We have to well, let me jump in and ask you this, though. So why do you think this is not being discussed? It's, it's a major problem. The violence is a major problem, not just in Washington. You've seen that now with the drive violence. Any inner cities that in, across this country and probably across this planet, too, there's a lot of violence. Why do you think, you know, the politicians, the churches are not really picking up on this? Why aren't they trying to come up with solutions to stop this violence? Well, there's several answers to that. Unfortunately, out of some of the European cultures, going back to uh, the, the war-like mentality that we see today with Russia, Ukraine, the wars that uh, America's been in in the past, there is a belief system in parts of the world that violence is supreme. That is a belief system that is wrong and needs to change. Secondly, you've got the issue of wealth. People make money selling guns. And the gun lobbies have millions and millions of dollars that they use to lobby elected officials in Congress at the state and local level. They're making such profits off of selling guns. In some of the alleys, Carl, in Chicago, we've heard that actually boxes of guns would be left in the alley because these white supremacists know if you give away guns or you make them inexpensive for our kids to get them, you increase the violence in that community. And every time they kill a black boy, they, they erase his, his DNA and all the children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren that he would have. I think the estimate is like 140 descendants can come from one black boy over five generations. So when you kill him and you make sure the gun is easy for him to buy and he can get the gun from somebody out at the, in, in the street, he gets a cheap gun, and he goes and shoots somebody. You have erased a part of the black race in America, and you have got people today that that's what they want to see. What we see happening in parts of the world, we know that there are governments 
who will literally attack people and their communities and commit genocide. We've witnessed it. Black people have experienced it. We know what goes on. So, yes, why do people believe in violence? It's just a sickness that has to be changed. We have to change the culture. Now, black people have done such beautiful things through music, poetry, art. Look at the music transformation that black people are capable of doing. We have demonstrated it over and over again. The music can be a way that it helps people to look at the world in a different way. Our churches have to get involved. Carl, I was at a church one time, and I asked the minister, look, uh, why don't you give sermons about violence here? And he said, you know what? Look at my congregation. He said about half of those families out there are experiencing violence, domestic violence. The parents are beating their kids. He said, if I get up here and talk about violence, I'm going to lose half of my congregation. Can you believe that? That's what he said. He didn't want to talk about violence prevention because his parishioners are victims of violence, and he didn't want to bring it up. And so we have seen situation after situation where people who are actually ministers or children of ministers have lived in violent homes, but nobody will say anything. The deacons won't say anything, the associate pastors, because you know this old saying, what happens in the house stays in the house. We've got to change that attitude. No, what happens in the house belongs to the whole family and the whole community, and you cannot beat up your family members, and that's unacceptable. 30 after the top of the hour, you're speaking about black families, and it is, it, some people say that what we see, the behavior that black families adopt is what they mimic from white families. Is there any truth to that? That if they saw the violence maybe on TV or some of the shows, or, or, or they say that's what we do as black people because we, basically the Pan-Africanist thought is that we don't know who we are, so we, we mimic white people, and we picked up that nasty habit of violence. Is that something you agree with or disagree with? No, I absolutely agree with that. 400 years of enslavement, our, our ancestors endured violence day after day after day. The women endured rape day after day after day. Yes, we watch television. Our kids now can sit and watch violence on television all day, all night. Video games show people being decapitated in the video game. There are weapons and violence that are presented to our families through movies, television, online websites, video games, these kinds of tools we have to challenge. And that's why with our Black Women for Positive Change in collaboration with our good brothers and with the organizations we work with, National Association for Community Mediation, 100 Fathers, St. Street Fighter Foundation, the National Black Nurses, we're trying to tell the country, look, violence is a public health issue. Violence is mental illness. Thousands of people committing suicide with guns is mental illness. So we have to get out there and vote for people who are going to change this scenario. Yes, the politicians don't like to talk about it because their money's coming from the gun lobby. So we have to change all of that, and we can change it. We just have to feel more powerful. You know, right now, Carl, people are very uh, depressed. They're empathetic. We have a lot of people saying, I ain't going to vote. Uh-uh, nah, it ain't me. I ain't going to do it. You've got people saying that they don't want to get involved in the community because they feel overwhelmed. We can't do that, folks. We have got to get involved. If you only have one peace circle 
at your kitchen table with your grandkids, that's good enough. If you have a peace circle in your backyard with the children who live in your neighborhood and you learn how to facilitate that and how to help them heal, that's good enough. Have peace circles at your churches. But we must demand one of our goals for Black Women for Positive Change is we'd like to see every school in the country teaching peace circles and peace philosophies. And fortunately, Carl, we do have a president of the United States right now who created the Office of Gun Violence Prevention. We actually have a federal office dedicated to this. And Black Women for Positive Change is meeting with them and talking with them about ideas. There's a very talented African-American brother, Mayor Stephen Benjamin, who is head of this office. He knows all about the violence. He's worked with the prisons. He's worked with returning uh, citizens. So we do have a team of people now in place. What we need is the people to get out, vote, organize, organize peace circles, raise money. We can do this. Because All right. Hold that thought right there, Dr. Dr. Myers. we got to take a short break. And Money Mike wants to speak to you when we come back. I'm glad you put it on the national level, too, because we've got one party that says that if they don't win, you know, there's going to be a revolution. They claim what they did on January 6th was was just a tea party. That's just the start of it. So I wanted, how can we can we affect change and and do it, knowing that they've already said what they're going to do if they don't win the next election? Family, you want to join this conversation with Dr. Stephanie Myers from Black Women for Positive Change? Hit us up at 800-450-7876. We'll take your phone calls in four minutes right here in Baltimore on 1010 WOLB. If we're in the DMV, we're on FM 95.9 and AM 1450. WOL, or information is power. And good morning once again, family, and thanks for sticking with us all morning long. Our guest is Dr. Stephanie Myers. We're talking about nonviolence and also talking about uh, conflict resolution, how to stop the violence in our community. Before we left, we got a call from Brother Haki in Baltimore. So, Dr. Myers, I'm going to let you respond to what Brother Haki said. Well, Brother Haki was talking about exposing kids and taking them on, on trips down in the South, and, and he's absolutely right. The exposure that we can provide our young people to new knowledge and opportunities is the best alternative to violence that there is. Our young people are violent and angry because they don't see a vision of the future. And we're going to be having our 13th annual Month of Nonviolence next fall. So there's plenty of time for all of your listeners to work with the young people in your family, work with the young people in your community, plan a webinar, plan an activity that can go on during the month of nonviolence in next fall where they can learn about other people in other countries. This year we had people from the Ivory Coast, Jamaica, Nigeria. We had young people all through the Ivory Coast that were doing peace circles and talking about anger management and conflict resolution. So we have relationships now where young people from Baltimore or Los Angeles or Alabama can have an online live conversation with kids from Ivory Coast and Kenya about peace. Wouldn't that be exciting? And these are things that our organizations, our churches can do. So we invite everyone to please come to our website, blackwomenforpositivechange.org. You can join the organization if you wish to pay dues. We'd love to have you. You can also go on our blog, 
and put up the name of your organization, your email, and we will keep you informed about things in the future. So there's when you go to the website, you'll see a link that says blog, and you can go on to that blog and express yourself. Tell us what you think about what we're doing, what you want right. to Right, I and mean, before you go, Dr. Myers, Right. I mean, yeah. hate to interrupt you. We're racing the clock here. Danielle is calling in for, for you. She's in Baltimore on line two. Good morning, Danielle. Good morning. How's everyone? Good morning, Dr. Myers. Good morning, Good Mr. Morning. Nelson. How- um, I just want to say that everything that Dr. Myers has just been so right on point. I'm the um, chair for the Baltimore um, County Black Women for Positive Change and High Key. A good friend of mine, right on point. He's very instrumental. I've been working with the young people, and like Dr. Myers stated, we definitely need to have all for our young people. We used to have rec centers and parks open. There's money that comes down from the federal government that goes to our different states and jurisdictions. Let's make sure that money is being put in the right place. The schools used to have um, extra activities where the kids could learn Um as far as job opportunities, the CTE program, let's make sure in our um, areas for our school for our black and brown kids that they have these HVAC um, training sessions or how to build cars, automotive, so they can still make six and seven figures in a job because everyone doesn't is not um, don't want to go to college and it costs so much money. Um, let's listen to the kids, listen to what they have to say. There used to be a step and step program with the federal government. And that program would allow the federal government and some state agencies to hire these children while they're in school. Because sometimes when they're juniors and seniors in school, they may only have one or two classes. And when they get out of school early, what do they have to do? What do they have to turn to? And let's have, like Dr. Myers mentioned, some listening sessions so that we can hear what the kids want and what they need. A lot of times the parents are so busy working, working two or three jobs, trying to keep these nice homes and these cars and give the kids what they want. But then when it's time for them to get out into the world, what do they have? So we need to also include them and include them in the decision-making process for voting. If we don't get out here and vote for the right people and office to make sure that we have these things we need. And like Dr. Myers mentioned earlier, while it is our, you know, Caucasian counterparts and other individuals, it is also us at the demise of us. I sat in on a meeting last night of some Democrats. You wouldn't even think we're here to save our democracy because there was so much disdain and disrespect for the black leadership that was there. But most of the people who were there disrespecting them were put in those positions by some of our black leadership, some of our black legislators. So we have to make sure we um, put the right people in office follow how they vote, follow what they're doing, and who's on their team, and who really supports our communities. All right, Dr. Myers? Yes, I agree with everything, and Danielle is a wonderful example of a leader in Baltimore. We need Danielle Smiths all over this country. We need women and men who are willing to spend the time she spends going to community agencies, having her voice heard. She's a role model for young people and adults. So thank you, Danielle, for all the work that you do. Thank you. All right. Thank you, Danielle. And thank you, Dr. Myers. So, Dr. Myers, one more time, how can folks reach you? Okay. Our website is blackwomenforpositivechange.org. People can come on the site, go to the blog, Put your name up, your email, any comments you want to make, and you can contact us there. Our email is bk 
digit four, excuse me, it's BK Women with the number four, Haas Change at gmail.com. I know that's kind of long. BK Women with the number four, TOS Change at gmail.com. That's our email address. So, Carl, thank you so much for all you do. The speakers you have on your program are the true intellectual leaders of the world. And I admire so much the way that you're able to bring this knowledge to us and the support that you provide. We've worked with you now for years, and you are a true example of the kind of media leader that we need all over the world. So thank you so much. And thank you for those kind words. Thank you, Dr. Martin. Thank you for what you do in your group, Black Women for Positive Change, as well. All right, family, we're going to keep rolling. Uh, A. Peter Bailey is joining us. Um, Peter, good morning. Good morning, Carl. How are you doing, man? Excellent. You know, it's funny. We're talking about violence, and and now we're talking about nonviolence, and we're going to talk about Brother Malcolm and his end and what he thought about violence. So before we talk, you take us back... Uh, what, 59 years ago? Before you do that, though, what was Malcolm's thought about violence? He didn't believe in violence. You, you know, for, for a black person in America to be going around talking about black folks, would have, would have been suicidal. He believed in self-defense. He believed that if, that as, as long as people did not mess with you, you did not mess with them. But if they, if they attack you, I mean physically attack you, and, and, and beat you or kill you, then you had every right to defend yourself. And that's what he always advocated. Now, of course, the way this was reported in the press, uh, in, in, in almost 99% in the white press, and, and even too often in the black press, was that he was advocating violence. And he never yeah, he had that tag. The, 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 how did that? How did he get that reputation, though? Because people thought that you know, the, I guess the, the, with the comparison with Dr. King, uh, Dr. King was a pacifist, and so people thought. And, and Malcolm was the antagonist. How did he get that? How did those reputations come? Was that the media built that up? Because that was the, because if you if you say if you if someone comes into a black community and you and and they start you know uh, abusing people and beating people and. And, and harming people, he was saying that black people had the right to defend themselves. Well, the way this country was said, that was that was violence, because they had swallowed they had they had not swallowed it really, but they they found that it very effective. This whole kind of nonviolent thing that, that became like the, the, their tone for doing everything, and anybody black who did not advocate that became a quote unquote an advocate of violence. If you did not believe in allowing uh, you know white supremacists and racists to come to your community. And, and abuse people and violate people, even sometimes kill people, then if you did not ex- accept that, then you, 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 you were always depicted as a believer in violence. And unfortunately, black people began to accept that. Mm. Uh, Peter, take us back. How did you meet Brother Malcolm? Uh, I met Brother Malcolm in the, the summer of 1962. I had just moved to Harlem and uh, moved in on a Friday and on Saturday morning instead of Instead of uh, of unpacking, a friend who had helped me move, we decided we were going to walk down to 125th Street. Now I must I must tell you, brother, at that time, uh, uh, I kind of had ideas about Harlem that everybody else had because I had I had again I had believed all even like you might get shot just walking the streets. You know what I mean? I really and truly believed that in Harlem was dangerous. The only reason I moved in was because I was able to get an apartment, uh, eight rooms for fifty two dollars, fifty six dollars a month. Uh, because of the of the uh, rent control thing, 
And so I said, hey, with that, I, you know, I'll take my chances. So we moved in. We walked down from 142nd Street. It was on 142nd Street down to 125th. And then we decided to go on to 116th. We got down to 116th. We saw a crowd gathering. And we say, oh, well, what is going on? And they said, Malcolm X is going to speak. And at that time, I'd heard of him. And, of course, I had heard vaguely. And, of course, I had heard the things. You know, he, he believed in violence. He talked about going around shooting, killing white folks and all that kind of stuff. I had heard that. And um, and so I kind of, you know, had, had not been very involved of, of following him in any kind of way. But I said to my friend, I said, let's, let's see what he got to say. And the brother spoke for almost three hours that afternoon. It was an afternoon. Uh, out on the streets in on 116th Street, right across the street from the from the Nation of Islam uh, um, uh, temple. And by the time he finished, I was a Malcolmite because I had never heard in my life heard anyone uh, describe the system, the United States system, in, in, with, in, with more clarity and 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 than he did that day. And and he spent at least 40 minutes of that talking about psychological warfare. Now, that was something that I had heard of kind of vaguely, but I had never heard it with the depth that he put it. And so that, that was my first time hearing him speak. I did not meet him until, until uh, later when uh, after he uh, uh, left the nation of Islam. And, uh, and I had a friend. I went by, after I heard him speak that first time, wherever he spoke in the New York area, I went. And I listened, and I and I he he, had, he talked about books and articles, and I tried to find those things and read them. And so I had a, I was working at that time at Time Inc. as a as an editorial reference they call the editorial reference clerk. Uh, I had to read papers and take out the names of people for their files. And then I had and, and with the Rockefeller Center right there in New York. So in the in Rockefeller Center there are a lot of rest, restaurants under kind of underground in the basement level, and I used to go down there and eat a lot. And 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 I was one day there was a young lady there and she and I had seen seen each other several times we never just spoke we never we didn't know each other but one time we we happened to be at the same table and we began to talk and then we did that for a couple of months and then one day she said to me how would you like to be a part of a new black nationalist organization and I said most definitely and uh, she said well I'll tell you what time where to meet and what time and don't ask no questions so I said okay. Uh, she told me the place to meet. I uh, that set that Saturday morning. Uh, I was up there, and I I walked into the room and I saw like Dr. John Henry Clark. I saw John Oliver Killers, because I saw my my friend and her roommate, but but about seven eight other people who, that I did not know. And we we were all sitting around talking, and nobody saying talking about different things about what was going on at the time. And after I'd been there maybe about twenty minutes, I guess it was. Brother Malcolm walked in. It wasn't until he walked through that door that I uh, found out that I was going to be a part of a new organization with Brother Malcolm. And he came in and introduced himself to us, and we introduced ourselves to him. And that was the beginning of the formation of the organization of Afro-American Unity. And that's how I met Brother Malcolm. Wow, what a story. Hold that thought right there. Norman in Toronto, Canada wants to talk to you as well, but we've got to take a short break. We're coming back, and we'll take us down memory lane 59 years ago. Our guest is A. Peter Bailey. He's a journalist, a professor. He was at the Audubon Ballroom. He was one of the last persons to speak to Brother Malcolm before his assassination. If you want to join this conversation with him, reach out to us at 800 450 7876. We'll take your phone calls in four minutes right here in Baltimore on 1010 WOLB. If you're in the DMV, we're on FM 95.9 and AM 1450. WOL, where information is power. 
And good morning, family. We're on with Dr. Stephanie Myers for Black Women for Positive Change. We're talking about violence and nonviolence and how to stop it. Also, uh, conflict resolution as well. Before we go back to it, let me just remind you, coming up later this morning, we're going to uh, speak with journalist A. Peter Bailey. Peter was one of the last persons to speak with Brother Malcolm 59 years ago today. He was at the Audubon Ballroom before Malcolm took the stage. He's going to tell us, tell, take us back to that day in uh, 1965. And also tomorrow, Brother Ishmael Muhammad will join us. Brother Ishmael is one of Elijah Muhammad's sons, and he's going to preview this weekend's Savior's Day event that's going to take place in Detroit. Also, a uh, chemitologist and grill, Brother Ashra Kwesi, the master teacher, along with his wife, Maria Kwesi. Mary Kwesi will join us tomorrow. You know, they talk about the African origin of civilization, and they also tell us to know thyself. This is part of the problem. We don't know who we are. And so people can come up and tell us that we are this and we are that, and, and we're all confused. So anyway, they're going to work that out for us uh, tomorrow. So if you're in Baltimore, make sure your radio's locked in real tight on 1010 WOLB. If you're in the DMV, we're on FM 95.9 and AM 1450 WOL. As I mentioned, Money Mike has been holding for us. He's on line two. He's calling from Baltimore. He wants to speak with Dr. Myers. Money Mike, good morning. Dr. Myers. Good morning. Dr. Myers. Good morning, ma'am. Dr. Myers, could you, you mentioned the gun lobby two or three times. Could you explain to us what a, what a lobby is and, and how does the gun lobby use its power or its influence to affect our politicians? Okay, great question. Lobbying in America is a organization mechanism where companies and individuals can pool their money and they can create a political action committee or a lobbying organization, and they pool their money and they go up to elected officials or people running for office, and they invest and donate to their campaigns. So they might say, okay, we're going to give you $50,000. You're running for mayor or you're running for Congress or you're running for president. We're going to give you a lot of money, and in exchange for this money, we want you to go up there and support the ownership of guns. We want you to support uh, that that young people can own guns and that people can have guns in there with no restrictions and they don't need licenses. So lobbying means influence. People with wealth and money pay money to politicians to influence their vote. And so we have to, if we don't have the money, but we do have numbers, so we can lobby by turning out the vote. So an elected official has to win by vote, not money. So if you've got 100,000 people voting in an election and you can get 80,000 of them to vote for the man or woman who is against gun violence, then you can beat the lobby. Does that answer but we don't hold our, Yeah, but we don't hold our elected officials accountable. So, uh, you know, and lobbying, it's a legal form of bribery. So, I mean, unless we learn to get on the game, and I'm not going to say all blacks or all African-Americans don't understand the power and the influence of money, but I study money, and, and I understand what it's done to, to us and to limit our political action. And so for years, where do, where's the black lobbying group? Where's the black lobbying organization, and why doesn't exist? Why don't anybody come to us and say, I don't know of any black lobby that has uh, financial influence, none. And it's been well, a money, Mike, money, on Mike, money, Mike, you're the one. You're, you're telling us the truth. We need you and your other money brothers and sisters around the country to form this black lobby. It's, 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 it's something that we have to do. 
We can't expect someone else to do it for us. You're right. You research money. I hear you on Carl's wonderful show all the time talking. Okay, it's time for us to get busy. We can't just talk about stuff now. We have to do it. Dr. Myers, I agree with you, but I've been, I've been at this for 40 years trying to teach people about money and investing, and it's like they're scared. They're, you know, they don't understand wealth. They don't want it. They, they want to just be status quo. So I'm going to keep on trying, but it's a tough battle, I'm going to tell you. Well, thank you for the work you do, and I'll be looking forward to hearing about your lobby organization. Creative. I'm like, don't give up on us. Don't give up on us. You know, sometimes you got to be patient with our folks because you're absolutely right what you're saying. But you just got to be patient. What you're saying is correct. We got to get that message out. We got to keep repeating it until our folks understand it. And and Dr. Mars is right. Because instead of talking about, we've got to do it. So, Money Mike, thank you for what you do, and thank you for bringing that up about the lobbyists. All right, family, we continue at 16 away from the top there. Marvin's also in Baltimore. He's on line three. Marvin, good morning. You're on with Dr. Myers. How you doing, Dr. Myers? And Carl, how y'all doing this morning? All right. Thank you. Uh, what I wanted to say is that, I mean, you got, you know, Mike was just talking about the uh, law and everything, about how they make making guys pushing on the street to black people getting I mean, and that's just, what, what part of their situation do the black people uh, do? Because, I mean, i put it to you like this. I got a buddy of mine, a real, real good friend of mine named Joe. Joe raised his kids up. They well-mannered. They do everything, you know, right. And they're real good kids. And they didn't grow up to be big kids. They ain't out the street shooting guns and worrying about how many guns getting into it and all of that. So, see, I, I feel as though is that the parents got to put the work in. You know I mean? We, we, got, we, we go to everybody else we're going to the parents. It should be mandatory that if you have a kid, you need to raise that kid right. And how you raise it right, if you go to school, you go to school with them. If you're going to hang out on the corner, you hang out on the corner with them. That can be, that can be solved quick. But black people don't want to put their work in. You see what I'm saying? And if we keep on asking for this, the help. When they come with the help, you don't want that. But then you want this to happen. You want this person to go talk for them. This and that. We ain't doing them, but forgive me, we, we bullcrap. That's what we're doing about our own race. People, listen, it just needs to simply be black people need to go and hang on the calls with their kids and go to school with them. That's it. And you'll solve that problem. I thank y'all. All right. Thanks, Marvin. Well, you're Dr. Myers? Right. Yeah. Yes, you're absolutely right. A couple of years ago, I was in Pittsburgh at a high school. There were about 500 kids in the audience. And I asked the kids, why are you so upset? Why are you so mad? Why are you joining gangs? Why are you fighting? One of the young men, 16-year-old, handsome young brother, stood up and said, we're upset because our parents aren't giving us any dreams. We're upset because we're not getting exposure to anything. No one is taking us on travel. We're not seeing anything. We have no dreams. So you're absolutely right. The parents, the mentors, the adults, the teachers, the ministers – We have to give our kids dreams. Now, one of our themes with Black Women for Positive Change is opportunities are alternatives to violence. Opportunities. It is our job as the parents, grandparents, uncles, aunts of these kids to to give them opportunities. Now, what do I mean? Okay, today in 2024, artificial intelligence, robots, 
all kinds of electronics, people going to space, all kinds of things are going on. Are our kids learning this? Do they know about it? Are we introducing our kids to futuristic technologies? No. Our kids are going to low-level public schools and hardly learning how to read, which is why the brother that was on early, Brother Akua, is having to step in. We have to find industries that are going to be growth industries in the future, and we have to teach our kids what these industries are so they can decide what they want to be. The young man said, we don't have any dreams. Okay, our children deserve the dreams of the ancestors who worked in the fields and picked cottons and dreamed of a better day. We are responsible for creating that better day through opportunities and stopping violence. Dr. Myers, at 12 away from the top here, how are we going to compete as, as parents, compete with the Internet? How are we going to compete with, with the entertainment industry that's pumping all this negative energy into our children's minds? How do we compete with that? Alternatives. Alternatives. We created a separate industry, just like we have an industry promoting violence and hip-hop and rap and, and going, you know, there's some language that's not good. We've got to go to the hip-hoppers and the rappers. We've got to go to the top athletes. We have to go to the top entertainers, Usher and, and, and Patrick Mayholmes with the Kansas City Chiefs. We have to go to them and say, look, we want to create a new future, and you guys control the way our young people think. So we want you. We have to reward them. We have to make it worth their while to do the right thing. See, the bad people are making it worth their while to do the wrong thing. We're not making it worth their while to do the right thing. And one other thing I wanted to mention, Carl, you talked about how the, um, the people are now coming against us with all the hate and the racism and, and January 6th and all that. Something else we have to think about doing is educating ignorant white supremacists about their own ancestry. A lot of these ignorant people out there on January 6th don't realize that their ancestors came here as poor white indentured servants. They were just a step away from being enslaved. They're ignorant. They don't know their own history, and they don't know they're being used. You have got billionaires who are using these trailer park ignorant white people thinking that we're their enemy. We're not the enemy. The enemy are the billionaires who are taking advantage of them. So as much as I hate to say it, we have to re-educate the ignorant white supremacists who think that black people accomplishing things is is their enemy. We're not the enemy. We want to build a country for this nation where black people are able to be in positions of power, like our Danny Willis and the different elected officials that we see, the district attorneys. And I'm so proud of these black leaders we have, Katanji on the Supreme Court, Kamala in the White House. We have to show them that the decisions our leaders make are going to be better for their children than the stupid decisions that these white supremacist racists are making. So we have to be willing to kind of go across the lines and go back and forth. Ten away from the top. I got a tweet question for you. But Brother Haki's joining us. He's also in Baltimore. He's online, too. Good morning, Brother Haki. You're on with Dr. Myers. Yes. Uh, Good morning, Dr. Myers. Good to hear you. um, one of the good brothers for the, the, the for the positive <laughs> black woman for positive change. Good to hear you. Wonderful, thank you. 
Beautiful, beautiful. Yes, ma'am. Uh, thank you, Carl. And, um, you know, I appreciate you. You, you know, you, you mentioned how uh, young people, the young man that stood up and said, we're not, you know, giving us hope and dreams. We're not seeing anything. And, you know, you hit it on right on the nail. And, and, that, and that's actually what one of my, you know, my initiatives on the President of Teaching Arts Institute as well. And, you know, we, we've, we've taken, you know, some small amounts to Africa, but also uh, for the past uh, two years, we, we took uh, groups through 10 different states throughout the South uh, on, on the Freedom Rides Tour, you know, mimicking what the uh, Corps and the other Freedom Riders uh, did uh, during the 60s and early 50s as well. And so, you know, I mean, just having young people seeing uh, different uh, historical context to put a context to to where they actually are in this time, you know, it opens up eyes and of opportunity and seeing different people as well as mixing and and, and having conversations with different young people. Um, but I, I'm also I just wanted to mention this, and you you, you mentioned about um, uh, lobbying. I, I'm on the board of the Maryland Black Caucus Foundation, not the Black Caucus, but the foundation, and I, I've seen. For instance, what you know in the, in the D.C. area, what the Congressional uh, Black Caucus has done, but also what the foundation has done with education, and many people see, you know, us for instance as an opportunity to really. I mean, we're not. The mission is not necessarily to be a lobbying uh, arm, but you know, in terms of education, uh, we have, you know, really connected to some of the uh, black officials, but. I think it's a beginning and working with, you know, other groups, you know, we can begin to build a movement. So I just want to, you know, keep you encouraged. But what do you think in terms of, um, you know, taking young people on college tours and freedom rides and things like this to expand bus tours uh, as well? So thank you, Carl. And I'll just take it off there. Thank you, Dr. Myers. Always. All right. I'll tell you what, Dr. Myers, I'll let you respond after this short break. we got coming up on a short break. I'll let you respond to what Brother Haki has said when we get back. Family, you want to join us? It's uh, six minutes away from the top of the hour with Dr. Stephanie Myers. We'll be back in four minutes. Question and talking about the violence in our community. What are your thoughts? 800-450-7876. We'll take your calls in four minutes for, as I mentioned, right here in Baltimore on 1010 WOLB. Also in the DMV, we're on FM 95.9 and AM 1450 WOL information is power. And good morning, family, and thanks for rolling with us 20 minutes after the top of the hour with a Peter Bailey. Peter was one of the last persons to speak to Brother Malcolm in the afternoon or the evening, actually, when he was gunned down at the Audubon Ballroom in Manhattan. That was 59 years ago. Uh, Peter's going to take us down that memory lane. But before we do that, let's go to Toronto, Canada. Norman's waiting for us on line one. Good morning, Norman. Is Norman there on line one? I think Norman left us. All right, Peter. So then you met Malcolm. So it started the the you started. You were part of that organization. What did that organization? Why was it formed? Why did Malcolm form that organization? The organization was called the Organization of Afro American Unity, and that's what it was supposed to be. It was supposed to be an organization in which black people could join, no matter what your religion was, what your uh, political beliefs were, what your uh, your education, you know, anything that you had, it was going to be an organization of Afro-American unity because it was, it was the position of Brother Malcolm and of our organization 
that we needed more unity in this society. Does that mean that we all had to think exactly alike on every single issue? But it meant that we would we would that we would be close to each other and work with each other. In fact, to show you show you, brother, how Brother Malcolm believed that it so strongly. He advocated that when he was still in the nation of Islam. He wrote a letter to the to the in nineteen sixty three to Dr. King and the head of the NAACP and the Urban League and the Corps and those organizations. And he said to them, If communist Khrushchev and and if communistic Khrushchev and capitalistic Kennedy can, can get together on certain issues that are that are, when they be regarded as a threat to them, both of them, or all of them, or white folks in general, then why can't we do the same thing? And and stop being so he said, I'm going I'm inviting you those 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 people. They were having a Nation of Islam rally. He said, I'm inviting you all to attend. You can present your positions. You'll be treated with respect. I guarantee you'll be treated with respect. And we will listen to what you have to say. Now, he wrote that in 1963 when he was still in the nation. You know, the nation attitude was like, if you don't join the nation, then you can't be a part of what we're doing. And that was many other black organizations had the same attitude. So Brother Malcolm had a long time belief in the absolute necessity of unity. And so when we, when he formed this new organization, it was called the Organization of Afro-American Unity, E-O-A-A-U. Were there, was it all black? Were there any whites, any Asians involved in the organization? There were no, there were no whites involved. There were Asians. They did not become members, but they, they were supporters of the organization. And there was uh, an, an Asian-American group that supported what Brother Malcolm was doing. And and they and they created an organization that they tried to make similar to it for people of Asian descent. Uh, there were I don't I, as far as I know, in fact I'm pretty certain there were no white members of the organization. There might have been some whites, you know, who supported it, uh, but they did it very very quietly. If they did, and I was not aware of them. But but it was a, it was an organization designed for for people of African descent, and and no matter what you were, in other words. Brother Malcolm's position, he believed strongly in Pan-Africanism. So you, he didn't want you to be a Muslim Pan-Africanist, a Christian Pan-Africanist, a Nigerian Pan-Africanist, an African-American Pan-Africanist, an Egypt, uh, a Ghanaian Pan-Africanist. He wanted you to be a Pan-Africanist Muslim, a Pan-Africanist Christian, a Pan-Africanist Nigerian, a Pan-Africanist Ghanaian. Pan-Africanism was supposed to be the first identity, and that was keep us unified. And that's what he strongly believed in. Yeah. Uh, 24 after the time. Uh, reparations. Did he talk about reparations? He, I never heard him talk about it directly, but, but that was, he always said that this government owed us. In fact, he was, he was going to go to the United, when he was ready to go, talking about going to the United Nations, that was one of the things that he was still going to take with him that they owed us for 200, almost 300 years of slavery, that the descendants of the slaves were owed economic uh, returns from the, from the uh, federal government of the United States. I ask you this question, because growing up, you know, we, in, in my household, family was always, you know, supporting Dr. King, well, and, and for me, it was, it was Brother Malcolm. 
it was this sort of in the household we'd have these debates and you know and with my dad and my mom about brother malcolm mm-hmm. and what he was doing and they thought he 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 was he was in too much of a hurry that's how they they, they put it he's got to be more patient dr king's on the right road uh, did, did, i'm trying to figure out if that was a sense in, in the black community back then uh and if so did malcolm pick up on that of course he he, he recognized that, that was that was what was going on and that's why he that's why he wanted to have a pan Africanist organization. If you if you believed in pan Africanism and and yet you wanted to do this particular thing, that was fine. But as long as you believed in pan Africanism, the necessity of black unity, that was the important thing. The absolute important thing that we had to work together. And and as I said before, Brother Malcolm was not on unintelligent enough to think that everybody was going to agree on every single issue at every single time. But he but but you would you would be dealing with it within the terms of unity. Just like this just like everybody else. That's what this country does. The Democrats and the Republicans and all these other different groups in this country, they argue with each other. But when they deal with somebody else, they deal as Americans. They don't deal as Democrats and Republicans and this, that and that. They deal as Americans. And he and he felt as though people of Africa descent should do the exact same thing. Right, they stay on code, and that's what we would deal with Africa. We would we would consider Pan Africanism the identity with people of African descent around the world as our first identity. Right. I got a tweet question for a tweeter. Said, "Would Malcolm be happy with the current direction of the leadership, black leadership today?" Absolutely not, because they don't they don't talk about leadership. They don't talk. I mean, they don't talk about about unity. They don't talk about economics. They put more emphasis. All they they put all that emphasis on politics. And Brother Malcolm taught us that you will never have political power without economic power. You may have a limited degree of political influence, but you will never have political power in this society without economic power. And so he felt as though we should make make more effective use of our collective economics. And 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 and, and he was not the only one who believed there have been other people who who believe that who have Marcus Garvey of course believed that same thing and other major uh, black leaders have believed that kind of thing. But but we always want to put everything on politics. Everything on politics. You, you know what, let me jump in here for a second though at twenty eight after the top still, hour. And we're still and we're still doing that today. You you, you mentioned you practically never hear black, black political figures in this country, even ones who like got big names and everything. You practically never hear them talk about more effective use of our collective economics. Never. Right. Uh, I'll tell you what, I'll hold my topic. question for a second here. 28 after the time. Bob, Bob in Buffalo has got a question for you. He's on line one. Come uh, on, Bob. We're heading in the right direction. All right, Bob, you have a good question? I don't yes, think sir. Bob's you... ready for us. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. A question for Peter Bailey. Go ahead, please. Yes, my brother. Um, I believe that Malcolm was right on track in terms of taking it to the United Nations, and it shocks me that no one has picked up that baton since then. And should we pick up that baton to take our, our grievances to the United Nations, including reparations? It amazes me no one has picked up that baton because it seems such a clear-cut uh, direction for us. All right. Thank you, Bob in Buffalo. Peter, do you think that what happened to Malcolm is, is this why no one else has sort of picked up the baton that he started? There's been, there's been no real 
to me in the last 50, 50 years, 55 years. And there's been no one who has really had a strong push for unity and, and not some kind of, you know, uh, good fellow uh, uh, unity, but a serious unity where we got together as a group of people and recognized our collective the need for us to to be collectively aware of what is going on in this country. And we get in all the different arenas, whether it was in health, uh, culture, economics, politics, education, technology, communications, uh, that we understand that we need to have our own positions in these issues. And then we we had to deal with other people, of course, not only in the United States, but around the world. But but we've dealt with it from a sense of togetherness, and we have not done it. To this day, we have not done it yet since in the last, uh, 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 since the assassination of Brother Albert. Dr. King believed in unity. I got a quote by Dr. King in his book, uh, in, in his last book, where he says, uh, we have been oppressed as a group, and we must overcome that oppression as a group. Right, hold on, throw it right there. 30 minutes and, after and the top there, uh, Peter. And, Peter, okay. do us a favor now. Take us back 59 years ago today. What day was it? How did how, we take us back to the Audubon Ballroom? What, what day was it and what time was it? It was February 21st, 1965, and we were having, we were having, you know, that's what we held, held our, our, our meetings and, and, and rallies, it was in the Audubon Ballroom, which is up on 168th Street in Manhattan, up near Columbia, you know, up near where Columbia University is, and Columbia University Hospital, well, way above Columbia University, but up where Columbia University Hospital was, and so it was called the Audubon Ballroom. And that's where we had uh, had our organizational meetings. And on that particular day, on February 21st, uh, Brother Malcolm was going to be speaking at the rally and kind of give, give because uh, he had been traveling abroad quite a bit, and he was going to kind of give a, a real speech about what he had been doing abroad and why he had been, why he felt so strongly about the need for, uh, for black people to develop a more a Pan-Africanist type of attitude when dealing with, with people on the, around black people around the world, especially those on the continent of Africa. So when he, when he came in that day, uh, I was I was the editor of the organization's newsletter. We had a newsletter that we called The Blacklash, and I was the editor of the newsletter. And the previous, the previous weekend, his home had been firebombed. So I had written a, a, a news release to be distributed the next day at the rally the next day uh, in response to the firebombing. When I, Brother Malcolm came into the office that Saturday, I showed it to him. And when he read it, he said, Brother Peter, you cannot, you cannot distribute this. Because there's one thing Brother Malcolm understood, Brother. He did not want us to get in trouble because of something we read. I mean, because of something we wrote, something that we said. He he knew how to say things and write things where they could not take you into court on it. You could be very clear, but you, you could not put it away. So he said that. Uh, just, so I took those and put them off to the side and did not take them in that, that Saturday. And uh, so when he did come in that Saturday, I was already at the Audubon Ballroom. I was there, you know, it had a huge ballroom. Then it had a kind of a small entrance group. And to the, to, the, to the right of the entrance group was a small office. 
and uh, and I was sitting there in, in, in this place. Right. And hold on, thought right there, Peter. We got to take our last break, and we come back. We will find you sitting at the at the outside of the yeah. the main ballroom of the Audubon Ballroom family. We can use your okay. radio vision and watch with your ears as Peter takes us back, fifty nine years ago, the assassination of. Malcolm X. What are your thoughts? 800-450-7876. We'll get you in. We'll take the phone calls in four minutes right here in Baltimore on 1010 WOLB and also on the DMV on FM 95.9 and AM 1450. WOL, where information is power. And thank you, family. Thank you for staying with us this morning. 23 minutes away from the top of the hour. We're going down memory lane with uh, A. Peter Bailey. Peter's a professor, a journalist. He was at the Audubon Ballroom, as he mentioned, 59 years ago, uh, the assassination of Brother Malcolm X. Before we go back to the just to remind you, coming up tomorrow, we're going to speak with Brother Ishmael Muhammad. He's one of Elijah Muhammad's sons. He's going to preview this weekend's Savior Day event that's <laughs> taking place in Detroit. Also, uh, chemitologist and Griot is going to join us. Brother Ashwa Kwesi, the master teacher, along with Mayor Kwesi, they're going to be here as well. So if you are in Baltimore, make sure your radio's locked in real tight on 1010 WLB. If you're in the DMV, we're on FM 95.9 and AM 1450 WOL. All right, Peter, we left off. You were sitting outside of the main ballroom at the Audubon Ballroom. Yes, I, I, there's a little, the entrance area is uh, it's very small. And, and, and right to the right of the entrance area is, is the restrooms. And, and, and right to, directly in front of the, almost a little, in front of the place where I was sitting is a, is the office for the for the building, and so I was sitting there waiting. And and the reason I was back there, brother, is that I had been backstage when Brother Malcolm came in, and I thought it was very important that I say this too. When Brother Malcolm came in that Sunday, and I was sitting there when he came in, and he said, "Brother Pete, when you get a chance, come backstage. I'd like to talk to you." So I said, "Okay." And about, about five or six minutes later, I went backstage. And now, and now here's this brother. His home the previous week had been firebombed. He'd been under all this pressure. You know why he wanted me to come backstage? Because I had written uh, a news release about the firebombing of his home. But evidently, I had said something in it where they could, they could get us, you know, get us on, you know, like take us to court. And when they, they might have a weak case, but it keep us tied up in the courts, spending time and money fighting it. So he asked me to not distribute his letter. So I had said, okay. But when I, that Sunday, that was on Saturday. So when I, when I got backstage, you know, and, and despite all the pressure he was under, he said, brother Peter, I know you put a lot of work in that newsletter. I hope you understand why I asked you to not distribute it. And I said to myself, brother, I understood. I understood. But I always tell people that this brother was under all this pressure and he's concerned about my feelings. This is the kind of person that he was. This is the kind of person that he was, and uh, so I and we, and we we talked. About, I showed him an article that I gotten out of the. Uh, I think it was the New York Times a day about some group called the Deacons for the Pension Justice being formed down in Louisiana. I think it was. I showed him a copy of that article. These these were black folks, and they were going to start defending themselves from the white supremacists uh, when they came into the black community. They were going to start defending themselves. I think I think they called themselves the Deacons for the Pension Justice. So I showed him that article. And he read it, and he said, oh, that's pretty good, that's pretty good. And after a few minutes, uh, you know, his home had been firebombed, so they were, there was a pastor coming in, a preacher coming in, who was going to make an appeal for clothing for his children. So he asked which of those of us backstage, which one of us knew what he looked like. I said, well, I don't know him, but I know what he looks like, because I've seen him, you know, seen him on television and everything. So he asked me to go out front and wait on him, and then when he came in, to bring him backstage. That's why I was sitting there. And and while I'm, I was sitting there, facing the door, waiting for him to come in, and I heard shots. I heard Brother Malcolm say, as alaykum. Then I heard shots. 
And uh, uh, myself and one other person that was out there, I think it was a couple of people, people out there, we, we ran into the bathroom, which was off to the right, because we thought the shots were right there, up there where we were, because they found it so clearly. Uh, we thought they were up there near where we were. Uh, so when they stopped, I went into the Osborne Ballroom and I saw, the, you know, chairs overturned and people laying on the floor. People were screaming and crying. And I ran down and jumped up on stage and, and, uh, and I saw Brother Malcolm on the stage uh, uh, with, the, with, his, with his, 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 all these, these, his shirt and everything ripped and these holes in his body. I, I, I leaned over. I didn't touch him, but I, you know, because I didn't, I didn't know what to do. I didn't. Would never have tried to do anything because I don't know what to do in a situation like that. I just looked, and um, and they finally the brothers found and went across the street to Columbia University Hospital. They got a stretcher. No doctor from the hospital came over to the to the Audubon. So the brothers just grabbed the stretcher and took the stretcher, one of those rolling stretchers, and they came back and they put another brother Malcolm on the stretcher and took him across the street to Columbia University Hospital. And and uh, when they after they did that. That's when I jumped off the stage and was walking out of, you know, walking out of the, uh, uh, out of the ballroom, going out front, and I could still hear, you know, people were crying and some people were still, you know, uh, shouting and yelling and it was, it was really something, man. So after the, was he dead before he, they, they took him over to the hospital? I, to me, I, I, I. I, I, I'd be very frank. They say that he was, and I don't know how to question it, but I know when I saw him on the stage, he was taking, you know how people, you could see that he was breathing, taking those deep, you know, when someone is, I guess, you know, when you got something wrong and you're taking those deep, you could see that, that he was doing that. And, uh, and, 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 and I think when they, when they, when they got him off this, 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 this you know, on the stretcher and taking him over, I, I think he was still alive. I mean, but you, but brother, you saw him. You could see the, the bullet holes in his body. And I just was thinking to myself, he's going to die. He's going to die. Because I just saw them. So you, you, so when we, the, there was a commotion after the shooting, because, you know, people were saying that he, the, the, the persons who fired the shots were going up, could, the trajectory. Could you ascertain from that no, from, from see, your I vantage not, point that i did that i think because well, I, I did not see that i was told that that two guys the, the, as i said before the audubon ballroom is huge it's a huge ballroom and i was told the two guys on the right hand side of the ballroom stood up and you know started a ruckus get your hand out of my pocket something like that and everybody was looking over there including brother malcolm and then, and then the the, the, the actual shooters—they were down in the front, and that's when they walked up. While the people they started shooting, after the shooting started, then because I, from what I understand, they ran out, and uh, 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 that so that's five people, and then they one of them one of them one of the brothers and brother in our organization had brought a pistol with him, and he was able to shoot this one guy in the leg, and and so he got caught by the crowd. And they they might have beaten him to death right there, but the cops came up and and took him away. And by the way, when I was sitting in the back there waiting waiting for the to bring the, the pastor in, I looked into the office built the office I told you about. I saw at least three cops in there, uniformed and, and, NYPD, and, 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 or, or were they plain clothes? And they were they were in uniform. They 
were not in play. I would not have known they were cops if they had been in plain clothes. They were in uniform, and they came in and they were just walking casually. Through. You know, when 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 I after they actually after they uh, took Brother Malcolm out, then I came out off the stage and was walking uh, down the Audubon Ballroom to get you know to go outside, and I saw these three cops, and they were just strolling around as though they were on a stroll in Central Park. Well, let me ask you this, though. Fifteen away from the top there. Let me ask you this, Peter. Uh, why why was there no security check? Because, you know, if you go to the, to the mosque, and I've been to the mosque in Harlem, mosque number seven, you pat it down. Why why wasn't yeah, that and, done and, for people to, at, when, and, just, and, when Malcolm and, spoke? Because he was trying to get away from that. He was trying to get away from that. And he had told, told the, see, I was not a part of security. You know, I, I I I was told by what they were doing, but I was not a part of security, and uh, and they say that Brother Malcolm told them that you know we're trying to get people to come to our meeting. We can't if we if we do that, then that's going to keep people away. We're trying to get rid of that image of you know of uh, of everybody being searched when they come in, and so he you know they didn't do it. But I think the brothers who were in charge of security they wanted to do it, but Brother Malcolm said no. Well, let me ask you this question, 14 away from the top. Now, prior to that, you, you mentioned his home was bombed out in Queens. Uh, did he have any indication? Was, was he talking like he knew that his end, the end was near? He, I don't remember him talking like the end was near. He, he, uh, he kept, you know, telling us about what he was doing with the trip to Africa, uh, his plans on taking, going to the United Nations. But he didn't, uh, at least to me, you know, now people, you know, some people may have said who probably knew him better, longer and better than I did may have said they noticed something. But to me, he just seemed the same. He seemed the same. He was, you know, the way he was talking, the way he was, 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 was when he, when he, when he brought me, asked me to come backstage about the, uh, what I had written. He 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 seemed he talked just like he always talked. I showed him the article about the deacons for defense and justice being put up in, in down. I think it was in Louisiana, and he said, "Oh, that's good. That's good. That's the type of self defense that you know that we that we are talking about." And so now people who knew him that I later talked to told me that he did look uh, a, like a little bit more concerned than he usually did. He seen it. He he, and he seemed to have deliberately kept everybody off stage. You know what I mean? He didn't. He, I, they say that he said that you know usually when you had a speaker or someone was going to speak at our rally, they sat on the stage while he was when he came out and, and we were going to introduce him. They sat out there, but he he kind of, uh, as I was told later by some of the brothers, he was trying to make he was trying to make sure that everybody was nobody else was on stage. Was Betty Shabazz there? Where was she sitting? If she, she was, was there. there. She was sitting there, and and she was sitting sitting in uh, uh, in in uh, one. They had in the you know as I told you before, they had there's a huge ballroom, very, very long and also very wide. And on the on the side, on the right hand side, they had like uh, booths rather than chairs. They had the rest of the time they had you know folding chairs. They set up. They didn't want to have in there because they had they, people could go to rent that place to go to dancing and that kind of stuff. It was a place where people rented to hold parties and dancing. So they didn't want no chairs in the middle. So they they the, the booths are all on the side. And Sister Betty was sitting in one of the booths about, I guess, about 
halfway down, uh, uh, two thirds way down, you know, towards the uh, bottom with, with the with the with the daughters. Wow! Now the brothers who started people, the diversion, uh, Peter, did they? Did anybody identify them, or was it just so crazy, this chaotic after the shooting that they, they managed were, to get out as well? Two, that's, well, they were all, those the five people who were, the, the, the five people who were picked up. After, they were included in the five. You know, okay. The people, the five were those the one who accused those? Those are the ones, some brothers from the nation the from Jersey. The, the three who did the shooting and the two who did the, did the, you know, the, the all five of them were picked up later. But then, with those who were accused, were those the brothers from the mosque in Jersey that, that they tried to put this on? That's what. That's what. That's what. That's what. I think they were a part of it. They were. They were. That's. I think that's. I think that they were a part of that. From, I was always so see I, I like I said before, brother. I was not a part of the security and all that kind of stuff, and I deliberately stayed away from it because I knew nothing about it, and I did not want to have them questioning me about it. So I kind of made sure that I did not, that I was not, you know, uh, I, I was with the newsletter, and and that's what I, you know, and, and dealing with that kind of stuff, you know, because to me the security required people who really knew what they were doing. And and I knew that was not my type of thing that I you know knew very much about at all, and um, so I but I was told that 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 the two guys who caused the disturbance were the guys from uh from uh from Jersey. And I got to ask you this because did nobody recognized. Right? Did did Brother Malcolm ever talk talk about COINTELPRO? Was he aware of that? He never talked about COINTELPRO, but he certainly told us about about the, uh, the the police uh, and and the things they were doing to to uh, to uh, to harm black folks and also about that about how they would recruit uh, you know black folks into the to be spies for the police department he talked about that kind of stuff to us and he told us that I never no, after him, I never heard him I never heard him Talk about control, but, but of course he talked about the FBI and the, and the things that they were doing because they had they had you know they had uh, uh, followed him very closely when he was traveling, you know, in Africa. Uh, you know, people, brother Malcolm, man, when he went to Africa, brother, uh, he had he had meetings with with seven with, with some of the top leaders in Africa, ranging them one and a half to three hours with with. In Kuma of Ghana, Nyeri of Tanzania, Nasser of Egypt, uh, uh, Azikwe of, of Nigeria, uh, 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 K- Kenny, Kenny of of of, uh, of, uh, of Kenya, Jomo Kenyatta of Kenya. I mean, he he met African leaders, man, and then they in turn then invited him to the OAU meeting, which is going to be held in in. Uh, in, in uh, June 1964, in uh, in Cairo, and he went to that. They he was not a not uh, you know like an official because he was the president of these organizations of these countries, but he was invited to attend. He issued a res- uh, he gave them a, a statement uh, uh, advocating uh, uh, unity needed for black people of African descent around the world and everything, and he participated in that uh, in that in that in that event. He was asked questions. And, and 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 this was all part of his his plan to take the United States government post the UN Commission on Human Rights. 
Because, you know, at that time, the United States, you know, had not signed the U.N. Charter on Human Rights. So you could, so nobody, nobody from this country could, could go take, take them there. You had to get somebody from a country who was a member of that. The United States was not a member. I don't know if they are to this day. Because they didn't want us to be able to take that thing, take it directly to the U.N. ourselves. So they never joined uh, the U.N. Uh, they had not signed or participated in the U.N. Charter on Human Rights. And we're just about flat out of time, Peter. But have you written a book about this? Because this, this is important that you what you, you what you just, the the history that you just shared with us. I think it's important that our, that our children know about this and what happened. Okay, brother. Well, I uh, I put together a book which came out about five months ago. It's called Brother Malcolm's Strategic Pan Africanism, an important subtitle, an important guide for people of African descent. And the book focuses solely on what he was doing internationally. The first section is, is all his documents, statements he made, newsletters, I mean, uh, letters that he wrote, uh, press releases that he wrote, uh, a couple of excerpts of speeches that he gave talking about, about his Pan-Africanist uh, philosophy. The second section of the book is the FBI files on what he was doing because, you know, they were, they were following him closely because this is the height of the so-called Cold War with, right. with Russia at this time. And uh, so the the third section is the is the the OAAU newsletter, which I was the editor. We were covering what he was doing. Every we right. we got we got the newsletters contained articles. And, and Peter, we just flat out of time. So is the book okay, available yet? Newsletters are in that section. Yes, it is available. There have been more available, but I got to get more. But anybody who want to find out when I'll have more can call me. And ahead, real quick. Land, can I give a landline number? Sure. Go ahead, real quick. Two zero two two nine one four five six zero. That's my landline. Leave a number where I can get back in touch with you to let you know when the next five books will be out. All right. Thanks, Peter. Family, we're late. We got to run. Thank stay strong. Much, stay positive. Please stay healthy. We'll see you tomorrow morning, six o'clock, right here in Baltimore on ten ten WOLB. Also in the DMV on FM ninety five point nine and AM fourteen fifty WOL, where information is power.